Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. For those who didn't listen last week, where the bloody hell were you? But more <laughs> importantly, you'll That's know, right. you won't know that Jerry has now um, gone from um, starting 11 to squad rotation. He will not be with us <laughs> every week. No... No comment on his quality, just on his availability more than anything else. Um, he will join us every now and again. So it's just the three of us this week. Uh, we'll be talking about video games, video games of film adaptations or vice versa with uh, special guests from the pupcast.com who have done a, a special chat with James on the subject for us, um, as well as what we've been watching and our uh, new release reviews featuring Rush. Uh, so we'll kick off with what we've been watching, and James will kick us off with that. Hello, yeah. Um, this week I finally got round to watching a film that's been in my collection for a little while. Um, it's not quite in the IMDb Top 250, but it is a very, very highly regarded film. It's the highest ranked film in the... Um, Sight and Sound, BFI, official best films of all time ever, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's 24th in that list, and it's the highest one from the decade of the 2000s, and one of only two in the top 250. Uh, top 50, sorry. Uh, in the Mood for Love, directed by Kawai Wong. Um, very briefly, it's... it's Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. For those who didn't listen last week, where the bloody hell were you? But more <laughs> importantly, you'll That's know, right. you won't know that Jerry has now um, gone from um, starting 11 to squad rotation. He will not be with us <laughs> every week. No... No comment on his quality, just on his availability more than anything else. Um, he will join us every now and again. So it's just the three of us this week. Uh, we'll be talking about video games, video games of film adaptations or vice versa, with 
special guests from the pupcast.com who have done a, a special chat with James on the subject for us, um, as well as what we've been watching and our uh, new release reviews featuring Rush. Uh, so we'll kick off with what we've been watching, and James will kick us off with that. Hello, yeah. Um, this week I finally got round to watching a film that's been in my collection for a little while. Um, it's not quite in the IMDb Top 250, but it is a very, very highly regarded film. It's the highest ranked film in the um, Sight and Sound BFI official best films of all time ever, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's 24th in that list, and it's the highest one from the decade of the 2000s, and one of only two in the Top 250. Uh, top 50, sorry. Uh, in the Mood for Love, directed by Kawai Wong. Um, very briefly, it's it's a kind of it's a kind of modern day. Well, it's not modern day. It's set in the sixties, um, but it's it felt really much like a, a brief encounter esque romantic story. It's just about a man and a woman who both move into uh, neighbouring Hong Kong apartments. It's a Cantonese film. Um, the man is a junior editor at a newspaper, and his wife is constantly working. Uh, late shifts and they don't see each other very often and a woman moves in next door and her husband is constantly away on business and they both suspect that their respective spouses are having affairs and uh, as a couple they start to form a bond um, what I will say about this film it's, it's absolutely beautiful um, it's one of the most beautiful looking films I've seen in a very very long time every single element about its production is exquisite um, the period detail for a start is wonderful it really evokes this this hopeful romantic era of Hong Kong being um, this gateway between the east and the west so you've got uh, a battle between tradition uh, and modernism, uh, this idea that and essentially this, this idea that these two people are held back by loyalty to partners that they are no longer really uh, connected to. Uh, it's a, it's very sad at times. It's very moving at times, and it's also quite funny at times as well. There's a few kind of funny characters in there. The two characters are played by uh, Maggie Chung and um, Tony Leung uh, from who most people will probably recognise from the Infernal Affairs films. Um, it's, a lot of what happens in this film is about what isn't said. It's about the knowing glances. The um, They filmed a lot more scenes where the couple spoke a lot more. Uh, there's a lot of philosophy about love. And there were some kind of scenes where they got physically involved and a lot of those didn't make the final cut of the film and I think it's I think it's the better for it to be honest it's one of those films that just has little moments that don't necessarily mean something at the time and you need to you need to be watching you need to be concentrating because little tiny touches suddenly come back and make up this whole this whole narrative makes sense um soundtrack is an amazing soundtrack as well I it's Again, it's one of those things, I think we've said it about on the podcast before a few times, about if you kind of fall under the spell of a film, sometimes it's difficult to put into words exactly 
why you enjoyed it. I know Owen felt that way. It was Whisper of the Heart, wasn't mm. it, last, last week? Um, the, the performances in this are absolutely wonderful. And it, it does remind me loads of Brief Encounter, which is one of my favourite British films ever. Uh, and this wonderfully evocative... That's a, another wonderfully evocative, romantic film. And it it seems timeless, yet also completely alien to you, in the sense that people just don't act like that these days. People take what they want. People, you know, renege on their wedding vows if they that it's not working for them. And it's just this... It's a bizarre, yet wonderful idea of loyalty... Um, it, I, I also, uh, again, anyone who listens to me on it, ninety-eight minutes as well. Yeah, you know, this is it, yeah. It sounds like the kind of film that would last three hours, but it really does. It's and that's another thing. It doesn't outstay its welcome. It's got a, it's got a story to tell, and it tells it, and it lets it, that story sink in, and you think about it. And I, I just haven't seen a film as beautifully shot as this for a few years. Full stop. Okay, that's. You will watch this and you will fall in love with the visuals. It's probably my favourite visual film since Amelie. It's really interesting use of light, shade, and colours, and the and the production design on it is is superb. Um, there is a sequel to it called Twenty Forty Six, which is a very very different film using one of the main characters, and it kind of explores a lot of things there. So I am going to watch that next. Um, but yeah, if you haven't got round to in the mood for love, believe the hype. It is one of the finest films I've seen from the last decade. Yeah, it's interesting. He's a very critically acclaimed director, isn't he? Uh, mm. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I've not personally seen any of his films, but you know, is it Chunking Express, which is the one that everyone sort of recommends yeah. first? And I, I mean, I really would like to see his films. I think it it seems pretty much up my street as well, from the way you've described them. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I think you'd like it, Owen. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I don't mind a bit of romance sometimes. Yes. No. Yeah. You. I think you're quite an optimist at heart, Owen. You reckon? I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Not, I'm not, not like so sure. see, not like Jerry. <laughs> not like Jerry. Jerry would have hated this. <laughs> yeah. Jerry's got his big cynical chip on his shoulder. Um, and of course, Steve, you're going to have to read it. It's just a, an issue there, but. Um, you may be able to get a dub version. It's in colour though, isn't it? I mean, it's not black. It's in colour though. Yeah, it's not black and white, so it's not completely art house. <laughs> that's assuming that I want to watch it. Yeah, that's very true. Ro- romance <laughs> is my thing. There's no car chases in it. Um, I don't even think a gun gets pulled, Steve. So, and there's definitely no uh, aliens or <laughs> or ghosts or anything like that. Just just two people who kind of love each other but not sure if they can be together it's quite sad why why do I want something to make me sad <laughs> <laughs> I've got enough of that in real life yeah oh, you're yeah. bringing the tone of the podcast don't know Steve yeah. <laughs> Get the violin Steve's back. our everyman <laughs> Steve's our everyman that's what I'm here for to bring the tone down yeah <laughs> To, to rain to rain in you two when you get a bit hipster and lovey ish. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's two on one now. Anyway, Owen, your film for this week is um, my my film feature. It does feature guns a lot, quite a lot of guns actually. Um, after James just says that uh, in the mood for love doesn't. This is just full of them. I watched a 1992 Belgian film 
Uh, yeah. I made the mistake of calling it a French film earlier, and James corrected me. It's a Belgian yeah. film, Man Bites Dog. Um, it's from 1992. I think probably before Blair Witch came out, other than Cannibal Holocaust, it was quite probably the most famous um, sort of fame footage mockumentary type um, film, actually. It's uh, yeah. sort of satirical, very dark, dark, uh, documentary that that's basically the characters in it are the film crew um who are following a thief and a murderer and a serial killer and everything that's bad and he's played by benoit now i'm gonna get this wrong because i always get names wrong on the podcast anyway benoit paul vorde i think that's who i think that's right yeah he plays a guy called ben and he is just horrible i mean he's one of the most it's not even anti-villain, uh, anti-hero territory. He's just an outright villain in this. He's just really despicable character who just goes uh, around murdering people just willy-nilly. And, uh, you know, there's one point in the film which is just the, the most uncomfortable scene with them just all, like, laughing and being jovial around this rape that's occurring. And it's just the the most disturbing film I've seen for ages. It's just really unsettling. Um, so, I mean, it, <laughs> at the same time, it's a really good film. And I don't want to sound like I enjoyed it because that makes it sound like, you know, only a sicko would enjoy this kind of mm. this story. But at the same time, you kind of really do think, oh, this is actually quite clever. And what they're doing is satirising, like, media um, and this constant need to follow things and get the most, you know, important information is the truth. So they follow this serial killer and you think you have to take a step back and think, well, you know, how much is following what's happening and where should the line be? Should these people be stepping in to stop it or is them getting involved in it kind of just basically a, a, a comedy of, you know, these people who, uh, you know, these documentary makers shouldn't be getting involved. They should be they should be putting a stop to this and saying, hang on a minute, <laughs> you're going around killing people, talking to camera about the best way to dispose of children's bodies. And it's just, yeah. oh, it's just, it's just such a grimy film. It leaves you with this horrible sort of sticky blah in your mouth because it's just, it's just horrible, really unpleasant. Um, but at the same time, it is quite funny. Can I say it's quite funny? I find it very yeah. funny. I'll be honest. I find it very... It, at times, yeah, I had to look away. Yes. Um, I, I think it, I found it very funny in the sense that I could just about make that leap to seeing the satire of it. And yeah. Going, right, well, okay, it looks very real, but it's obviously not, and they're clearly making a point, yeah. and therefore I can just... But it... It reminds me, of, uh, in a way, of some of the uh, some Chris Morris work or something mm, like that, mm. in the sense that it it really kind of walks that very fine line where you're going, God, I don't know if I'm meant, I don't know if I should find this funny. I don't know if I should yeah. find entertainment in this because for me, some of the best Chris Morris work does that. The the nine eleven pull out that he did for the Observer, for example, was an absolute. Uh, you know, that was just a year later, mm. and then elements of four lines and and you're right it is about that kind of media obsession and what it does very cleverly i think is it actually makes the viewer 
complicit in what's going on yeah. and it actually says to you yeah you're enabling this by you know if this was a real documentary you'd be watching it and you'd be essentially allowing this to happen That's right. um and it did this all before kind of natural born killers um i think it's a very groundbreaking film and it's a very brave film but you're right it's possibly too effective in some ways, and it does. It can make you feel a bit sick just watching it. Does, it does definitely. I mean, the, the the problem with it, I suppose, for me, really was um, because it tries to make you feel like you're watching a real documentary because of just how obscene and how um, absurd it is as well. Yeah. Um, it does take you out of that a little bit, and you. I mean, it, it tries to mix like um, the mundane and the macabre. You know. It's, You've got very, um, really just very dark uh, and disturbing scenes mixed in with them just being in the pub, having a drink and having a laugh, you know. Um, So it tries to make it feel more realistic. And at times it it kind of takes it out of that when when you have these darker moments. Um, Yeah. So that was that was the only kind of real problem I had with it. thematically speaking because the narrative just kind of it just removed itself from from the film occasionally but otherwise it's a it's a solid film and um yeah definitely worthy of its cult status because it's such such a well-made film i think it was only like 15 grand budget as well so it's proper tiny budget so it's like you know proper guerrilla filmmaking where they just (laughs) rocked up in places in you know in town centers and films bits of the film and you know it's um quite an achievement really to get what they did out of it and I think it works because Benoit is, he just holds the camera. He's a horrible, really? like you say, he's a despicable person, but it's an incredible performance yeah, from one man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's just a fantastic actor, but um, really <laughs> unsettling character. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Man by so it's the first time I've seen it. I'm, I've been an advocate for film footage films in the past, and I don't really want to drag up the debate again. Uh, well, you know, for what this one ticks my boxes because it's it's, yeah. uh, it's a documentary, so that's, that's right. fine. I'm fine with fan footage documentary, so it's all good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, worth a watch though. Definitely, um, mm. wouldn't watch it if you're, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, likely to be that disturbed by it. If you've got a strong stomach, yeah. then then it's worth a watch. Very, very. Yeah, it's not. Brutal. It's not one to watch with the family at Christmas. No, not really. No. Okay. Um. Right, so my review is of a film called I Declare War from um, last year. It's a Canadian film um, directed by Jason LaPere and Robert Wilson, also written by Jason LaPere. People probably never have heard of, but still, this is apparently the done thing is to read out who directed and things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Steve's learning. Steve's becoming a film journo. Anyway... (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's a film about a group of 12-year-olds who um, go off to play capture the flag in their neighbourhood. Well, despite it being set in modern times and not playing Call of Duty, which is probably far flung from reality, really. But there you go. They go off into the woods and they go and play capture the flag. Um, but they're, as 12-year-olds do, their imaginations run wild. So the rocks become grenades, trees become controlled. Everything becomes real, essentially, in the film. You start seeing it as you would be seeing it through the kids' imaginations. So they're basically using real guns, and you see the kids actually getting shot properly, and then it'll flash back and show that it's actually not real. It's just them pretending. Um, so it kind of 
splits in between the two kind of realities, the real one and their imagination. Um, it's quite stereotypical in as a war film. Essentially, that's what it's trying to be. And it's trying to... Um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but it's just trying to be put across the message that war is bad. It doesn't matter what kind of war it is, you know, whether it's kids playing games or some World War Two or some massive, you know, Star Wars type science fiction war. It brings out the worst in people. And inevitably, that's what happens in this film. Um, some of the kids end up being complete assholes and doing things that are quite nasty, but then you've also got, you know, the people who can't deal with authority, the people who have been bullied, the people who are excellent strategists, the people who are jealous of other people. And it's just, a, it is just, a, every character is um, just a, basically a stereotypical character from any other war film. It doesn't do anything, despite the idea, the concept of the film, it doesn't do anything original with the actual, you know, war film genre. I, I think, think he's. I was gonna say, do you think that's intentional? Do you think it's trying to? Because it seems like quite an unconventional film, mm. really, and unconventional. It, it sounds like a good idea, and it starts off being quite enjoyable, and then it kind of goes a bit downhill. And I, the, the the performances aren't exactly brilliant, but it, I I think it's the messages are just a bit too strong for it to yeah. kind of come up, to work properly. They're really forcing the message home. Like mm. with with a sledgehammer, and so, so it's not like they've tried to um, take the sort of piss out of standard soldiers. It's more that it just falls into the traps of every other. Yeah, they, they don't. Yeah. They're definitely not taking the mick out of films. It's not a parody or a or anything like that. It, it it's it's played quite straight. Although there are kind of a few funny bits. And as as one there's one character. They're obviously doing war, pretending to be war, and there's one character who suddenly imagines that he's got kind of Cyclops-style laser vision. <laughs> and the other, okay. and the, other kid sort of, the other kid's sort of looking at him like, what are you doing? This isn't what we're playing. <laughs> but, you know, there's a, there's a few fun... But it's not, it's not taking the mick or parodying the war film genre. Mm. It, it is playing it quite straight from what I could yeah. gather. I don't think it's trying to be a kid's film either. I've, yeah. I think they would have been better off not putting the message in, trying to hammer the message home so hard because it's quite obvious what the message was anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, it was quite anyone watching it could have seen that and they could have played it a lot more subtly and the film probably would have worked a lot better. And then people could have watched it without having that being forced home and just enjoyed the film because the best, the best films of a message don't force a message home. Mm. It's in, it's in mm. like, kind of like District Nine. Everyone knows there was a message in that, but it didn't force. You could just watch it and think, oh, it's a science fiction film about aliens." Or then you could look at it deeper and think, "There's a message behind that. There's something behind that. They're trying to make a point." And and that and I declare war probably would have worked a lot better should they have tried that approach. It seems pretty interesting. Um. I mean, I've never heard of it before, but it's it seems. No, I haven't. Seems, Where did you see it, Steve? Somebody recommended it to me on the Football Three Six Five forum, and mm. then I had to find a copy to download through uh, some source or another. 
Right, yeah. Okay, fair <laughs> it enough. It wasn't available. I'm sure it sounds like the type of film that pop up on Netflix at some point. Yeah. yeah. Keep an eye out for that. It seems, um, mm. I'd, I'd yeah, like no, I think. I, yeah, I, I do like watching films where I like the idea, even if the, uh, even if the execution's not yeah. quite spot on. This does sound like quite an intriguing mm. idea. It's, so It's a definitely a good idea, and it's not unwatchable. You can definitely watch it without getting too annoyed with it. It's just not mm. not overly kind of great. You kind of, at the end of it, you think that could have been a lot better. Mm. You don't go away thinking, God, I've wasted my time here, but you go away thinking that could have been done a lot better. Yeah. But, but then so... who am I to judge? <laughs> Well, you're a failed critic. That's what you're, you're here to do. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's all for what we've been watching. Up next is our uh, little chat on um, video games and films, crossovers, etc. And our guest feature. So, yep, James here. This week sees the release of not only one of the most anticipated video games of all time, but uh, a game with a budget unmatched by all but pretty much one Hollywood film and projected taking surpassing even the Avengers from last year. I'm talking about Grand Theft Auto V, the latest in the series, which started off borrowing from films, now stands apart as a cultural phenomenon of its own. And to mark this occasion, we're going to explore the history of the relationship between cinema and video games, what worked, more often than not, what didn't, uh, and what the future holds. And I'll be honest, it would be extremely generous to call me even a casual gamer these days. So I've been joined by Jackson Tyler and Callum Petch. Hello. From the, hello, hello. yes, hi guys. From the, uh, the podcast, uh, podcast.com, uh, who are hopefully more of a Super Nintendo to my Sega, uh, Sega Mega CD. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us, fellas. Now, I'll, let's... Think back to when video games were nice and simple. Uh, my first computer was an Amstrad CPC 464 you know, uh, tape drive. Came with its own monitor as well, which is quite, you know, quite fancy. Um, now, back then, film tie-in games were quite common, but rarely had much to do with the film. I remember one of my first games I remember actually was the Platoon video game, uh, which was essentially a man running along killing things um it came with a free tape copy of Smokey robinson's tracks of my tears though which was uh nice it got, got my musical education going <laughs> at a young age um what about you guys what what kind of film tying games do you remember from your youth um any good ones any particularly terrible ones film tying games are generally pretty terrible uh, how they are they're made they have to be yeah. made to be released at a certain time uh, that like there is an example of I think it was there was the Armageddon game where the whole thing was um, built around you were going to play with Bruce Willis and the focus testing came back and they were like no one wants to be with Bruce Willis they want to be Bruce Willis so they had to change the game to play as Bruce Willis but all the dialogue made it sound as if Bruce Willis was talking to you so it just the whole game made it seem like Bruce Willis was talking to another Bruce Willis in his head. That's the kind of level of quality we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that that's actually a game called Apocalypse. That has nothing oh, to do with Apocalypse. Armageddon. Sorry, yeah. But, but yeah, that, that sort of thing. But they are most of the time just like, you know, shutting it down, and especially in, with regards to um, licensed games of kids' films, which, mm. especially back in the um, play, early PlayStation 1 era, and kind of pretty much all the way through the PlayStation 2 era as well, were basically Super Mario 64 knockoffs. And usually yeah. pretty bad ones at that. They had very little to do with it. I don't remember um, the Toy Story 2 uh, one, where you were supposed to play as Buzz rescuing Woody, which had 
very little to do with the movie of any kind, but just kept inserting me, like these FMVs taken straight from the movie. And I remember yeah. at the time, like, like you know, when I was six, and I didn't, and my parents were actually watching TV as they wanted to watch like Toy Story two on VHS for like the seventh time. I could just pop that in and sit and go, "Oh, it's like I'm watching the film." <laughs> but then you can look back nowadays and you realise the camera was terrible. It's all phoned in. It's it, it's but most of the time they are just made to you know cash in with little thoughts. Sometimes you do get good ones, but they're often the ones that have little to do with the source material itself. Like, um, one of my favourite ones going up was, it's not exactly movie time, but it's still related to a sort of property like that, was um, Sheepdog and Wolf, which was a PlayStation 1 stealth action puzzle platformer based on the Ralph Wolf, Sam Sheepdog, Looney Tunes shorts. Which, right. Which, uh, like, just, it captured that sort of, you know, but essentially it was like you were playing a Ralph Wolf, Sam Sheepdog thing, but from the perspective of Ralph Wolf and you'd win. Because mm. it's that sort of good. It's those sort of ones that the like for every one that's decent and inventive and have cameras that are not crap. There's like a million ones just shunted out the door with little forethought of a guard and just you know with like terrible graphics and broken controls and you know, like just the barest I've made to, you know, made to um, get earn a quick buck essentially. Yeah. So yeah, it, it always seemed to me that the the movie industry saw that the video games industry as just some upstarts that they could treat as they would toy manufacturers. Mm. Essentially, this was just an extension of the toys, Happy Meals merchandising that they could do, earn some money from licensing and uh, a knockout. I, I still met the Terminator Two game was one of the worst things I've ever played. Um, I think I was on an Amiga actually. But um, is there a point where Kind of, you felt the tide starting to turn. I think one for me was um, it, when I was. It was a GameCube game, and it was. I can't remember the exact title of it, but I got to fly an, a Star Wars X-wing, Probably and it felt Rebel Squadron or Rogue Squadron. Rogue Squadron, that's the yeah, one. Yeah, that's pretty good. And yeah. It, yeah, and it was just the first time I thought. I actually, for the first time, I actually feel like this. This has some connection to a film that I, I enjoy. It made me feel for the first time that this is almost kind of like me being in a game. I suppose um, GoldenEye on the uh, Nintendo 64 had, mm. had an element of that where it was a recognisable world and it it was like someone started to treat games with a little bit more respect. Uh, yeah, well, there is also a difference between uh, games that are made for a film release date and mm-hmm. games which are just based on a licensed property. So, like, the Rogue Squadron game was just a Star Wars game that came out. And mm-hmm. the other uh, other games are just they make them like two months to sell to kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you've always had people making good licensed games for stuff. It wasn't it wasn't like there were no good games, yeah. and then all the good games came because yeah. games are still pretty shit now. They can be. <laughs> it's not you know. Um, yeah. And I've mentioned like, like Dick Tracy on the Mega Drive as one of the over Genesis in Europe as one of the good ones. For example, one of ones which I'd argue was actually better than the movie. It was based on but <laughs> that sort of thing. Right. Also, one of my ways of doing it is like there were two Star Wars games that came out with you know within the month of the release of Revenge of the Sith. One which was based on this on the movie and was a terrible side scrolling brawler, and one which was Lego Star Wars, which was you know like an affectionate parody of all three, and that was the good one because I, it bothered yeah, to have care and attention to you know attention to detail, and it wasn't kind of just like a shrewd marketing thing of now the kids can buy this and we and Lucasfilm earns crap tons more money 
as someone who played both of those games like an idiot, uh, that wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a side scroller. It was a D. But that Revenge of the Sith license game wasn't good, but it was okay. As they go, it was a better one. I think <laughs> one thing to note would be one of the best license games um, that came out in the PS2 era, where most of them were just the worst ever, mm. was the Spider-Man 2 video game, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Um, somehow they made you know. I made a Spider-Man game really great. You swung around the city and they've made Spider-Man games since and then none of them are as good. That is one of the yes. best games ever in terms of a single mechanic. Mm. So, But it's not very cinematic. They're just things that... Mm. Um, they, they, you know, they take the property of a film and then they put them into a game. Whereas mm. you have the other way of um, games borrowing from films in that more overt way, like... Obviously, you have the FMV games in the 90s, which were super, super dumb. And no, kind of yeah. a, Like, you know, there was the Star Trek Borg, where they essentially filmed an episode of Star Trek Voyager from the first person, and you had to make decisions. It was... I was... They got pretty stupid. Define um, decisions, Jackson. You had to decide whether you wanted to go with Q or not, and if you didn't go with Q, you got a game over in the first five minutes. <laughs> um... I'd see loads of this has just passed me by and I, I kind of feel like I wasted my youth not playing these games now which is which is you sad now obviously we've talked about yeah at, at one point they started to use licensed products in a decent way and come up with good games but then there was definitely a switch and I think it was you know, almost certainly as technology became more advanced, about attempts to make games actually feel like films. Obviously, um, some did it in quite a, an overt, uh, homage way, like uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, for example. Lots of Scarface uh, influences there. A number of other cinematic influences. A lot of, you know, Michael Mann's Heat and things like that. But then we had games like, for example, Heavy Rain, which essentially tried to have you act out a film uh, and make decisions. Um, did any of them? Yeah, L.A. Noir again was you know kind of trying to feel like a an L.A. Confidential esque film rather than just being a game. And have any of those games uh, games ever come close for you to achieving that aim of becoming a film that you live? No, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is where you get Jacks onto the podcast here. He gets all immediately like negative and cynical. Everything's crap. Everything's no, terrible. Saying, no, 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 no. I'm not saying everything's crap. I'm saying that that's not what games do well. They get sure there are some situations in a game where you feel like you're a dumb phrase of you're in a movie, but none of them happen through them trying to be movies. So in the GTA game, when you get that feeling, it's never because they made a good cutscene and they wrote good dialogue. It's because the the city is designed well and some random guy just jumped in your way and then you began a car. It's the stuff that evolves out of the world rather than them attempting to like be like films. If you go, I mean, like there's this game called Far Cry 2, which people didn't like very much because um, it, it was essentially all systems and no narrative. And it's one of the most cinematic games ever because all the moments evolve naturally. And that's when you get that feeling of this is awesome. This is a moment because it evolves naturally rather than you just doing what has been programmed like um, Call of Duty would be now. 
Mm-hmm. Well, like one of the first things that with the Medal of Honor front lines intro, where it basically ripped off the D-Day landings from Save It Private Ryan. Yeah. That's what. So I kind of think that at the time you thought like, wow, this is amazing. Then you look back, then you know you've come across and you find more natural sort of things. Nowadays you look back, then you realise it's pretty much just like a go here, rush here, go there, go there, shoot that guy, shoot that guy, move, move, move. Like like you're in a movie and every or like essentially the battlefield three single player, where essentially it feels like you are an extra in a movie, but the, but the game's already scripted out, and if you happen to get in the way of its actors like if you stand behind a piece of cover of the game preordained months before that's that this guy's going to go behind me is be pushed out like that sort of thing where it's more like a roller coaster ride than a movie oh no and yeah i think i i would agree with you actually and uh, uh yeah a few of those games mentioned just yeah you you can tell what they're trying to do but um i'm getting the feeling now uh and speaking you know quickly to jackson a couple of days ago on twitter that you think films are maybe uh well games are gonna move away from that now they're gonna stop trying to be films well, are they gonna... it's not that they're gonna stop trying you because st- essentially what try to be that kind of imitating films are these big expensive video games on consoles mm-hmm. so you've got your call of duties and essentially uncharted 2 was the peak of this where it was just an indiana jones movie and, mm. and the, the game it had it had gameplay and the gameplay was like you interacted but all of the main enjoyment parts of the game came from it being like an indiana jones movie whereas now the games you have um that you that are doing really well are these smaller these really tiny games that are all about your individual mechanics. So you have Gone Home, which is a story-based game, but the story, you only interact through reading things that are just laying around, so it's nothing like a film. It's just it's you, you, the stories you can only tell in video games. You've got Gunpoint, mm. which is all about... Uh, this is a puzzle thing about linking switches to plugs, which sounds really dumb, but it's actually really good, because you're basically rewiring this thing and jumping around with one of the... You jump a lot. Jumping is good. Um, <laughs> or, and, or like um, Hotline Miami, which yeah, is put like Miami. a giant indictment against games that have you go out and murder people for very little plot by getting you to go out and kill lots of people with very little plot, but then making you walk back through your carnage afterwards. And, with like, I, I, and you do it like you know, this like Twitch gameplay sort of. You have one life, everything dies in one hit, including you. But there's pulsing music, and you can restart immediately. So it's that sort of like drug kind of thing. And then when you finish level, and just all the sound just cuts out and you have to walk back through your carnage just to make you realise, oh god, what have I done? Or in terms of getting across that same thing but in scripted mediums, being like Spec Ops The Line, which tells a story which could only be told through video games, which starts off that pretty much as like a Heart of Darkness adaptation and then just just slowly turns it around of of insulting you for getting enjoyment out of playing games like Call of Duty and that sort of thing in a way that was really, that I, I love to death anyway. Um, I you want to mention the Walking Dead game that came out because people were talking about that a lot in terms of things that are kind of like cinematic and essentially that evolved out of Heavy Rain and it's, Telltale made a bunch of adventure games that were proper adventure games about puzzles and Heavy Rain with this play this movie Jason, Jason, Jason thing um, and essentially what The Walking Dead is which people like liken to films a lot because it's all dialogue almost entirely it's all dialogue and it's all character so i guess that is the most similar to films that we've got but on the other hand it is all about your interaction with it and even though your interaction doesn't change the game the the, your interaction changes the way you see other characters and your own um just your your own experience through it so it, it is it could also be only told of the game you couldn't make that as a movie because 
if you can't decide whether you're going to like Kenny or you're going to like <laughs> like Ben, you know, then then that game falls falls apart. It could not work unless you were in it. And it's hard to describe if you haven't played it, but... Yeah. It Sorry, yeah, like... Jackson, Jackson's dragging up old podcast quit, um, <laughs> arguments between me and him. I'm, I'm, re- I'm really not. I'm just pointing out that, <laughs> that if you... Um, that just, just, it on the surface does look very filmy because it's all people talking, mm. but the way you interact with it is crucial to your enjoyment of it, but the way you interact with Uncharted 2 is not because that is the same every time for everyone. Mm-hmm. Plus also, you know, in regards of you saying, you know, that Walking Dead and Heavy Rain comparison, I'd also argue Walking Dead is infinitely better written than Heavy Rain. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, no. Do you know, I have learned so much just in these 15 minutes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, me and my walk into game and pick up a something off the shelf there. Uh, there's a load of stuff there I'm going to look into. Thanks very much, Jens. That's been absolutely brilliant. Um uh, thank you very much for coming on Failed Critics this week. Uh, and just to say again, it's www.popcast.com. Is that correct? Popcast. As in dogs. As in, it's a thing. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah, it's a thing. So you can, you can find these. You can, and on yeah. iTunes, actually. You find these gents there. Thanks very much, guys. So that was... Uh, uh, or James's little chat with the guys from the pupcast.com on um, kind of the history of, of um, game games being adapted from movies. Um, it's obviously with the release of Grand Theft Auto V in mind. They made me feel so middle-aged, you know. <laughs> I, I was just listening to them. Uh, and at times, I, it was, I don't know what you're talking about. It really made me feel my age. They, they bloody love their games, whereas I kind of, I've, I buy games now and again, but listening to them talk so passionately, uh, but they were kind of nerds as well, and God <laughs> bless them. Um, yeah, it, that, it was a nice chat. Thanks, thanks again, guys, for doing that. Yeah, so we're now going to have a, a bit of a chat of, um, well, James, why don't you introduce it? Okay, well, yeah, that was a brief discussion about how games have become more cinematic and how films have been the kind of inspiration and source material for games. Uh, and obviously, our our specialist subjects, if you can call it that, is films. And so, what we're going to talk about is the kind of checkered history um, and some some if we can find some good examples. And I'm sure there are plenty of poor examples of what happens when people try and convert games into films and use games as the source material uh, right. for films? I, I did, did uh, want to say I did agree with them that when when there's a film, uh, a game released to tie in with a, a film's release date, then yeah. that they usually are terrible. When you get yeah. some film uh, games released that come within the same universe as a film, they can work really some of them really can be well. really good yeah i mean there's, yeah. um there's some there's a couple of star wars ones the newer ones i mm. can't remember the, the, the tagline that comes with it but you're playing some kind of apprentice of darth vader who mm. ends up turning good oh is that force unleashed the one. Yeah, they're, they're, that, they're, that was good fun they're both yeah. really good um and, and people rave about knights of the old republic as well i've never played it but People rave about that, you know, this entirely, you know, uh, massive multiplayer mm. online games, you know. So, that, uh, yeah, 
you're you're exactly right. The film tie-in ones for releases are generally did you, terrible. Did you ever have the uh, Pod Racer game on the N64? No, I didn't. Was it good? It was one of those that was quite fun to play with friends for a bit, yeah. 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 Okay. But, you know, Goldeneye was brilliant mm. on uh, the Nintendo 64. And again, on my Wii as well. I bought the, the re-release on Nintendo Wii, and that was great yeah. fun as well. But, yeah, so sometimes that's worked well. But how about the other way around, then? Let, let First off, let's just see if we can... Are there any that you've gone, actually, that was pretty good, based on a film, uh, films based on a computer game that you've gone, actually, that was pretty good. The first time I saw Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, mm-hmm. the first couple of times I saw it, actually, I was very impressed with it. I quite liked the um, the sort of concept behind it. And, you know, it talks about um, Gaia, and which is the, you know, how Earth is like a living thing and people got to look after it and blah, 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 blah. I thought that was quite nicely handled. And, of course, you know, the technology at the time was just unlike any other animated film about it is that motion capture and it was just in, it was just incredible and I think it came out with a lot of hype as well. Um, although it's not it's it's one of those films that's not like a direct adaptation of a computer game and I think that's what disappointed a lot mm. of people. I know uh, Matt Lamborn on Twitter um, mm. and Alpha site as well. Um, he mentioned it earlier that it was it did feel like a cash in on the success of sort of Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII that would just come out around the same time on the PlayStation, and were huge um, successes. Uh, you know, they sort of transformed RPGs for a whole generation of people, um, mm. which in themselves were quite sort of cinematic at times. A lot, a lot of the FMV sequences in that were just, you know, quite long, and um, you would like watching short films at times. Um, but Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, yeah, that was one that I, I liked at the time. Not quite so... Um, keen on anymore um but i think no, it, just because of the impact it had at the time it was quite quite a, you know it sort of blew me away a little bit the list is pretty poor isn't it when you look at yeah the kind of um I, I i'll be honest i do like the first resident evil i can't i enjoy it in terms yeah it's not it's not brilliant cinema but it's a seven out of ten film Bo- for me box office this list. Hits, though resident evil films yeah. They get made for small budgets, but regularly come back with, you know, box office of 200. Economic, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The last one, Resident Evil Extinction, made for $45 million, made about $148 million at the box yeah. office. So. That's why they keep getting made. They, yeah. they always make money. Um, but I do think the first one was quite a nice little B-movie. Um but I'm, beyond that, I'm, I am genuinely struggling. I know that Owen's going to uh, kill anyone who says that Street <laughs> Fighters are bad. Uh, and I don't know if that's just because it's got Jean-Claude Van Damme in or if, or if, if Kylie's appearance has got anything to do with you, um, it. If you look at... There's a, there's a Wikipedia page, as there is for everything. Um, mm. It's got 1990s um, through to around 2010 of... Um, of uh, film adaptations of video mm. games, top scoring one on Final Fan uh, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Final Fantasy Spirits have been forty four percent. That's the top one. Yes, with forty four percent of that period, nineteen nineties to two thousand and ten. Yeah. Uh, next up is DOA Dead or Alive. Um, oh Jesus, the, that's terrible. The original Resident Evil, the first Resident Evil. Sorry, they are yeah. both tied on. 
34%, and then next is wow. Mortal Kombat on 33%. They are not well received. Mortal Kombat. That was yeah. another massive box office success, though, wasn't it, Mortal Kombat? I remember that was made for a small budget and came back, you know, a huge return on that one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, but there are some that massively flopped, aren't there? Like Super Mario Brothers, for example. Double Dragon uh, got zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Whatever uh, the hell Double Dragon is, it ain't any good. Oh, well, I that, do was, mem- that was going to be one of my. If we were going to do the triple bill, that was yeah. going to be one of my choices. Well, for this, this one, <laughs> sixteen sixteen million dollar uh, budget made two million dollars. Which one's that? Double Dragon. Double Dragon, yeah. yeah. I've I've not seen it. I have seen now. Someone is a master of the terrible uh, video game adaptations to films, and that's um, Uwe yes. Boll. Um, and my pick, if you can call it that, of those for him would be Alone in the Dark, uh, mm. which is one of the worst pieces of cinema I've ever seen. But actually, doesn't beat my worst one. Um, Silent Hill was possibly the worst film I've seen in a cinema in my entire life. <laughs> Absolutely low. And, but weirdly, um, it's not like it was cheaply made or something. It just, it was such utter gunt. Oh, God, I hated it. With I was sat there just wishing I could go to sleep. Were you a, I just wanted, were you a fan of the game, though? Did you? I really liked the game. Okay. Um, Do you think that had an influence on how you felt about the but, film? I don't think so, because it, it was during a period where we used to go and watch horror films. Every, yeah, any horror film that came out, me and a group of friends went to watch it. It was one of our, our horror Wednesdays. We went with an Orange Wednesday ticket group of us. We're like, right, we went to see a few like decent... We went to see The Hills Have Eyes remake at this time and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And we're like, okay, Silent Hill, okay. I'll, oh, it's got Sean Bean in, okay. Um, <laughs> and we went to watch it, and about 30 minutes in, went, I, I have no idea what's going on here. Um, oh, actually, I think I know, and it makes actually no, that makes no sense. And it just it felt like um, someone doing a really bad David Lynch impression, basically. And David Lynch is the only person who can make David Lynch style mm. films. Anyone else comes across as a tosser, and I, I just I've never wanted I, I've only ever wanted to walk out of a film more than that, and that was the uh, British rugby comedy Up and Under. <laughs> Um, which is terrible. I went to see that instead of Titanic one night, but I still probably made the right decision. <laughs> um, but I, I, I just absolutely hated it, and it's really kind of put me off. That that put me off computer game adaptations for a long time anyway. But when you look at the stats, like you say, no one seems to have made a genuinely good one. That That's what's annoying. There's a few that have been passable. I think Doom is passable to an extent. Yeah, at least it's got the rock in and it's got Carl Urban. It does a decent job. I think the first Tomb Raider film is passable to an extent. It's a five, six out of ten film. It's not terrible. Um, but I'm, I'm really struggling to think of a good one. Well, yeah. maybe there will be some in the future because there's quite <sighs> a number lined up. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about one in particular. 2014, uh, Need for Speed. Is two that will not be good. That will not be good. No, that's. uh, Let's call that one now. We've got Fast and Furious. What the hell do we need? Need for Speed. If you've played the games, is basically a video game of the of Fast and Furious, driving round in brightly coloured, souped up cars, doing crimes. Yeah, that's Uh, that's all it is. There's there's very little plot. There's lots of action. 
Um, Assassin's Creed is due for a film. That's, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's the one I'm kind of excited because it's got the fast in it. Mm. Fastbender's in it, and he's producing or something as well. Um, he's expected his one... uh, career to be on a bit of a downfall, I think, <laughs> from next year it's, onwards. It's a weird one, isn't it's it? Just... It's so weird because he is a critically acclaimed actor. He's in Twelve Years a Slave. He's going. He's probably going to be Oscar nominated this time next February for Twelve Years a Slave. Um, he's got The Counselor with Ridley Scott coming out in November and yet he's doing Assassin's Creed I can only imagine he's a bit of a gamer or something it's a it's a weird one but but it's, but it's got a it's got a potent just you know forgetting it all could the, work forgetting all the future kind of weird stuff that goes on in it you know the going the mm. historical part of it has got potential to be quite epic in thing kind is, of scale if, and, and a, if someone says Michael Fassbender is doing a film about a secret, you know, band of assassins set up against the Knights Templar. You go, oh, that sounds quite interesting. But because it's based on a computer game, you go, it's gonna be, it's gonna be shit. Isn't it? oh, <laughs> yeah, crap. That's the it's also due for a movie in 2015. Mm. <laughs> don't, that don't... Was, um, the reception to that was pretty mixed. I think it was announced at mm. the Comic Con and. Uh, yeah, <laughs> most people apparently who like Warcraft anyway seem to be quite keen on the movie, as you may expect. But um, no one else. It's Duncan goes. Jones directing, though. It's Duncan, jo- and it's again, it's this really credible name. Mm. You know, Duncan Jones has made Moon and Source Code. He he knows his stuff. Yeah. Um, and he's excited about it. So part of you goes, well, if he can see something there, it must be good. And if you again, if you'd said. Duncan Jones is getting a film, he's getting a huge budget, and it's going to be fantasy epic. You go, oh, well, that's, I'll give that... Well, it's based on a computer game. No, it's going to be shit. <laughs> um, with, with, so, with a July the 1st, 2016 release date penciled in, Angry Birds is set for a, a movie. I can only assume that's going to be a kid's film. Yeah, It can't be anything more than that. It'll be poor. Actually, there's a, um, there's a Lego film out next year, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. The trailer actually looked quite fun for that. I think I think the Lego film w- could well be the one because oh, that's a computer game based on an actual toy. Mm. So that's if they get, if they get the tone, thing. if they get the tone, basically if they get the people who wrote the computer games in to do the film, it could work. Yeah. Because the Lego Star Wars and everything like that is pretty. Yeah, well, it's great fun. Yeah, mm. and it, and it's better. It's better than most of the kind of serious versions of those games. Mm. Um, it's got a nice sense of humour, and they've got a really good voice cast for that as well. So yeah, I think that could be, um, possibly the big family film next year, which makes an impact, which would be nice. Uh, Metal Gear Solid. That's the one I'm most excited about. 2016 is apparently having a movie version made of it because I think the original game lends quite well to a. Uh, a movie. It's one yeah. of those things, though, isn't it? Where they, they, I mean, these things are created to be games, and mm. it's the way that I mean, Callum and um, Jackson were talking about it on that mm. feature. You know, the, the you know, as cinematic as a, a game might appear, or as you know, it's it's still essentially the story is written for a game, yeah. and it's when that translation occurs that things sometimes just don't really work and I know you know you might argue that book adaptations or comic adaptations might have the same problem um, I think they still lend themselves better to 
being films because they're just a straight narrative. Games are mm. much more interactive and it's about your participation in it. Yeah. You get out of a game as much as you put into it. Um, with films, you're very much the audience and nothing yeah. else. So, and, and just to kind of finish off this section, that really chimes with what um, Dan Howes, the creator of Grand Theft Auto, the you know the original yeah. Grand Theft Autos, and he co you know he wrote uh, the most recent Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Auto Five. Said they've had opportunities, they've had money potentially thrown at them to make a Grand Theft Auto film, and he said it just doesn't work. Um, that's not the that's not how they tell their stories. And he said it doesn't complete. It doesn't just you know swap over. He said it might work a little bit more with television, where you've got longer to tell your stories and things like that. But no, it's very and it's obviously very difficult. And because we're yet to find a classic film which is based on a computer game source material, so that the the evidence and the statistics show that it's not that simple at all. Uh, very very difficult so but there, there's a good few there that maybe could break the mold who knows and maybe it'll be like when all of a sudden comic book games uh comic book films started getting good is because they have people who grew up on comic books maybe you've got people who understand computer games now making these films and maybe that'll make a difference yes that uh that brings to an end our discussion on computer games and movies and their adaptations, etc. I will be back next with um, our um, reviews on some new releases. Now on to our main reviews, and we'll start off with Rush, the Ron Howard film starring Chris Hemsworth, uh, telling the story of the 1976 Formula One World Championship title race between James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. Here's a clip. James, do you think you can cope with the pressure? Well, I've never really understood what that means. I love my job. I love competing. I love racing. Maybe you should ask Nicky. He's the world champion. He's got everything to lose. Mr. Lauda, are you feeling pressure? Do I look like I'm feeling pressure? <laughs> I'm world champion and on the verge to become world champion again. Hunt now has the opportunity to win, but it's not so easy to become a champion. You have to really believe it to make it possible. James, is there anything you'd like to add? If Nicky is being tricky and getting a kicky out of playing mind games, <laughs> then fine, I'm flattered. But the fact is, momentum is with me. I've never felt better. And I fully expect the next press conference we all have will be with me as world champion. So that was a clip then of... Uh, Rush, um, before we talk about the film, it's probably worth finding out, are we all Formula One fans? I did like the sport, I did quite enjoy it, and it all got a bit boring. It seemed to take away, the cars all became the same, and, you know, it kind of got a bit identical, it was all a bit dull, and then the same person would just win all the time, and become a bit uninteresting but there was a time a period where I did really get into it and enjoy it uh, yeah I think a, a lot of young men would have had that I had that um, uh, yeah it's a sport I don't watch anymore but it was something I shared with my dad because it was the one sport he liked uh, when I was growing up so I'd watch it with him and I think I, I do remember seeing Nelson Piquet uh, Ayrton Senna 
Alan Prost, Nigel Mansell, people like that. I think Damon Hill was the last driver I had any kind of vested interest in. But um, it's a cinematic sport, though, definitely. Uh, Looking at Senna uh, like a few years back, I, I love seeing F1 portrayed on screen, even if I don't actually particularly bother to watch the the real stuff yeah i mean um i'm in a similar position to you as well actually i didn't i uh, it was one of those things that my dad liked and he would watch it all the time but i never had an interest of my own in it i mean i never followed any races and it it was just one of those things that my dad liked and i didn't you know when you're a kid you don't like the things your parents do because you're being rebellious (laughs) and stuff but um i always found it a bit boring even, you know, when you had people like Schumacher and Damon Hill, and I just thought, mm, it's just too predictable. My um, sister-in-law used to watch it, actually, and she used to mm. watch it because she found the predictability of it comforting. So, I mean, that's just because <laughs> she just used to like the fact that it was always the same people winning the races all the time. That's why she watched it. But Whereas me, I'd find that kind of thing just insanely yeah. dull. And... Um, but you know, I, I I never really knew about the history of the sport. So the story, I obviously knew Nicky Lauda was a, a you know famed racer, and he had a rivalry with James Hunt. But I didn't know any of the details of it. So coming into this film, um, well, I was going to say coming into this film, I was quite fresh to it, and it was quite interesting. But the trailer to this mm-hmm. film, before we start talking about the film, can I just have a rant about the trailer? Go for that it. Just, that was just a storyboard of the whole film from beginning to end. And I know yeah. it's a, you know, a, based on a true story and quite an old story and there are lots of people who already know all the details to it. I don't know all the details to it um, until I'd watched that trailer. And it was on every time I was going to the cinema for about, I don't know, about a month, month and a half beforehand. Mm. Um, really poor, spoiler-ridden piece of trash that trailer was i hated it just ruined the film in many respects but that said i i mean i don't know what you two thought of it but i thought the film was actually quite good i came out of it with um you know i was i came out of it thinking well they've actually managed to make formula one seem exciting so you know given the juice it's something i never thought i would i would think about formula one I I actually really enjoyed it, and it seemed like um, what well, it seemed like the film. Actually, it was exactly the film I expected. Uh, you know, uh, it's Ron Howard. It's got the Hollywood glitz and the sheen. Great performances. It's written by the same guy who wrote Frost Nixon, which Ron Howard also mm. directed, which I watched this week for the first time um, to kind of give me a bit more of an insight into. Uh, Rush and, and I really enjoyed that and I think this is something that Ron Howard does very well actually he he has a real sense of place he has a sense of history and some of my favourite films of his are films which are him just bringing to life a bit of history that I hadn't really known about and it, it, it in a way, he's acting almost some kind of like history teacher for me. Because uh, I really enjoyed Apollo 13. Again, it happened before I was born. Frost Nixon, again, it evoking a time, evoking some people and some characters um, that I knew about, but bringing those characters to life. James Hunt I knew about. Mm. I, I knew about this playboy um, race car driver, and I did see little bits of him when he used to present on 
on BBC One uh, in the Grand Prix. But this film brought that whole era. It didn't just bring James Hunt to life. It brought the era of the 70s, the amateur race, the kind of almost the gentleman racers mm. who decided to just spend some money so they could race cars in exotic locations and but bed lots of women. It must be difficult for a filmmaker to tell a story where everyone already knows the ending. I'll be honest, I didn't know the ending. No, I mean, didn't know exactly lot, the ending. A lot of people do, and a lot of people could have looked yeah. it up. A lot of people could have... Oh, yeah. When, well, as soon as they heard Rush was being made, they could have gone... Mm. Alright, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna watch old race footage and, and read up. On and appara- it. Or, or- apparently, there's a very good BBC documentary of the Hunt oh. Nicky Lauder rivalry, which is possibly still on iPlayer, but I've not had a chance to watch. People, but, people no, you're right. You know, people could have gone well, Apollo 13. They they get back all right. So yeah. watching the film, I know there's no in a, in a way for a lot of people, there's no suspense watching the film because yeah. they know the outcome even though i think this did a job a good job of building up suspense in the last yeah. in the last but like race it's very easy to know what happens even if yeah yeah no, i understand that and so i think for me ron howard's skill is but is getting good performances out of his actors and just building up this sense that you're there that you are in that time really good production design the the cars looked and importantly sounded fantastic this is a film that sounds mm. really good it looked really uh, it, good as well though the, the, it did the, you know but then anytime that era is put onto film or tv you know like um life on mars it tends to look pretty cool and yeah and argo last year you know, yeah um again a true story um but yeah i i, I really this is a film that i i would urge people who are thinking i'll wait for it on dvd no if if you think you might like it go and watch it in the cinema because you'll be far more impressed i think it will have less impact at home simply because some of the scenes looked fantastic but for me the sound of it uh, and i i hope it gets nominated in a lot of technical awards for for sound design because it just sounded an incredible film uh, I, I love that i felt I felt really on the edge of my seat at times. And the other skill was it actually brought you into a world which is very difficult to understand mm. from the from you know watching it on TV. But there were one or two scenes where you are at, you're literally looking through a visor in a car doing 150 miles, and you think, "Shit, that that looks terrifying. <laughs> how how the hell did they?" And oh, and it, there was there's a couple of scenes like that where it just made me go, "Christ, that's." That's in, you know, I've got such, I'm such in, I'm so in awe of the people doing this because you don't really think about how little visibility they might have in that tiny little cockpit, that tiny little visor, and it's chucking down rain and shit at it. And you think, wow, yeah, no, they, it helps you realise that all of the quite poetic and the quite stagey language that sometimes the character because it's not the most naturalistic of dialogue it's a lot of kind of greek monologues and stuff like yeah. that from the uh, uh from the two protagonists um you know and talking about how every time i get in the car i know there's a 20 percent chance i'm going to die and stuff like that what kind of people would do that and you think yeah this is just bravado and then when you look at actually what they had to do you think no that would they did really risk their lives every time they got in one of those cars, and that's quite incredible. Yeah, I mean, just coming to that point you mentioned about the dialogue, 
I mean, there mm. weren't very many criticisms I had of the film. Um, no. And in fact, even the dialogue, it wasn't until I sort of properly sat down and thought about it afterwards that it was a bit cringeworthy at times. Yeah. You know, they had a lot of, um, particularly towards the end of the film, where there's just a back and forth dialogue between Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brawl, mm. um, which is just one Confucius parable to the next Confucius parable. And then just back and forth with that for for about five minutes. And he, at the time, I was really caught up in it. I thought, oh, this is really cool, actually. What they're saying to it is quite cool. Yeah. And then you sort of think about it, and actually, mm, that was just a bit silly, actually. And I think that's the that's because of the background of the writer Peter Morgan, yeah. who started in theatre, and apparently this film when he when he devised it and when he started writing it it was i don't know if you told me this owner or if i read it somewhere um because i don't i want to give credit to whoever told me this but apparently it was meant to, it wasn't meant to feature any racing in it was going to be quite a low budget british film and it it was going to be about the two men and the action was going to be in whenever they spoke to each other yeah. and it was when Ron Howard got on board and you know they started raising the money for it that they were able to turn it into this big motor racing film but its genesis uh, was in potentially bringing it a stage play to life mm. uh, so that is where I think a lot of that dialogue comes from is the fact that it was originally going to be about two men talking to each other rather than racing each other. Then I, yeah. I think you need to get across that the two the two main characters are completely different in their in their personalities, but in the way they approach the sport. I mean you've got Hunt who is one of them sportsmen where it appears to come naturally to them. Kind of like George Best. They don't have to try. They can just rock up and do it and they're brilliant and then go home. But they're but they're you know a bit of a maverick and a bit of a playboy and a bit of the kind of person everyone wants to be, and then there's then there's someone like Louder who has to work incredibly hard. It may be it's maybe not natural to them, so they have to work incredibly hard at everything, and they have to spend yeah. so much time practicing and getting everything right and getting everything down to the millimeter. And even then, sometimes they can't win like against mm. somebody who they think just turns up on a day and does it, and they think he's not even trying and he's bloody better than me. And I think. You know, you've got to have a lot of dialogue to kind of. Otherwise, you could just see it as two drivers who are just two, you know, not that different. It could just be two guys going into cars and driving. Oh yeah, the whole. I think the whole the heart of the film is about the two different men. Uh, but to me, it's quite interesting because I was thinking, if this wasn't based on a true story, if this wasn't based on true personalities, this might be a very cliched film it would, it would <laughs> be because it is that's it, the thing you'd think if it wasn't true you'd yeah. think it was ridiculous um and i think someone else described it as a live action version of cars <laughs> pixar's cars essentially yeah. and uh, and that's true it's because the two characters are it's exactly that odd couple um even down to you know comedy uh, the original film the odd couple was about a very fastidious you know very you know very person by the book person who didn't get on with someone who just was very spontaneous lived life uh, as and when it came kind of thing it's it's almost the oldest cinematic um dynamic between two characters uh that ev- that's ever been uh and it was only because you i think because it's grounded in a historical context it gave it a bit more credibility and believability and you could let some of that go 
I'm quite um, disappointed of not being able to find many articles to read on the making of this film, how it was actually, you know, how how much it actually involved um, Nicky Loud, a bit, you know, various different drivers from the time to get a real feel of what the rivalry was like, what the well, racing was like. I've just not been able to find much out about it, which is quite disappointing. Isn't it sort of adapted slightly from his own autobiography? I, I, that's my understanding as well. Um, Peter Morgan met Nicky Lauder on, I think, 16 occasions in the end. Yeah. Um, so Peter Morgan, it is, he has based it on Nicky Lauder's memories, essentially. Yeah, which um, is what I was quite shocked by. I thought the film mm. was going to be mainly sort of James Hunt's point of view. Um, yeah. As soon as he's almost built up as, um, not the hero, but, you know, the... The downtrodden guy who does good, yeah. but it's actually he's the underdog, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, but the um, it's 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 told almost from the perspective of Nicky Lauder, and it's his it's sort of like his memories of his rivalry with James. How, Hunt, which was, how well yeah. how well has this been? Um, not so much received. It's getting excellent reviews everywhere, but in America, how's it how's it gone down? How you know people going to watch it? Because Formula One is one of them sports that in America they don't seem to get. Well, they don't, um, they don't although they for. did at the time, because uh, there there was a Grand Prix in America at the time, and in fact, in the film, once the Grand Prix takes place mm. in America, um, I'm not sure of its box office, but it's doing decent box office. I know that it's not smashing records, but it, again, but the reviews it's one of those been, films that looks. The, the reviews haven't oh, been universal though, not even in no. the UK. You know, no, um, they've been they've been of a kind of of a positive. Uh, but there have been even the positive ones have said there's this issue with it. There's potentially this mm. issue with it. Um, but I, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure how well it's done in America. I do think it might sneak into a few uh, potential award setups. I think it might do. Um, I hope Daniel Brühl, who plays Nicky Lauda, I hope he gets a nod in some of the big. Uh, acting categories A because I'm a big fan of his anyway really like his work from um, Goodbye Lenin uh, Inglorious Bastards and uh, The Educators I think it's called a German film as well so I really like him and he he is brilliant I think Chris Hemsworth does a great job um, uh, and he gets to keep his Thor accent basically <laughs> um, playing James Hunt. He does, he, I, and he's very charismatic, and I like him a lot. But it's quite—I can't even remember. Easier... What, I can't even remember what he's meant to sound like, like his actual voice. I, I do remember him being quite a posh bloke um, in real life, I, and I think Hemsworth gets that spirit. But it's—it's it's quite an easy one because he's such a likable cat. It's easy to be that likable on screen. Whereas Nicky, La- uh, yeah, Daniel Brühl has got a much tougher job of an un, yeah, a character that not many people in the film like, and even the audience don't really like him. Uh, and in a way, like James Hunt, they come to respect him more than anything else. And that's far more difficult as an actor to be able to do that, and I think he does it brilliantly. Okay. Um, now then, a review of Insidious Two. A sequel to the horror film Insidious. Here's a clip. Come on, let's get out of here. This is my room! 
Okay, that was a clip then of Insidious 2. Uh, Owen's the only one who's seen this, so Owen, yeah, tell I'll, us about this. I'll talk about it, yeah. It's um, the sequel from uh, James Wan, who is... Um, he did The Conjuring earlier this year, which we all really liked. All of us who saw it on the podcast all thought it was um, really good. And um, this is basically his more silly <laughs> sort of horror film, if you like. There's more humour in it, I think. Um, did either of you two see the first film, Insidious? Yeah. No, I've still not seen You've it. still not seen it, but you've seen it, Steve. What, did you yeah. like all of it, or did you like a bit of it, or did you I, not like any of it? I thought it was kind of... It didn't really do much for me. No? See, I no. quite liked the first half of the first film. Um, I thought the first half of the first film is where it starts to take itself quite seriously. And you can tell that... Um, Oren Pelly, the producer's got a lot of influence over um, the style of it because James Wan's more known, I think, for the Saw films, which are very um, claustrophobic and um, you know all about the situation. Whereas uh, Insidious is just a haunted house film, really. The second half of the first film, so it's, it's very difficult to talk about Insidious too <laughs> if you've not seen the first film because it is, it is a direct sequel carries on the plot from exactly where the last one left off um, but the second half of the first film it for me just went a bit too silly it went a bit too over the top and it went all very trippy and dreamlike and it was just a bit of a shock compared to how the setup had been in that first half of the film in the second half uh, sorry in, the, in chapter 2 Insidious chapter 2 it kind of embraced that more humorous side to it and it's not taking itself quite so seriously anymore um you've got two characters in it who um try and video all the activity that's going on they want to sort of film all this this, the the weird things that are happening to the lambert family who um in the first film it's their son who you find out is being haunted by a ghost or a demon or a spirit from another world um and in the second film it's so again, I can't really say what it is, but it's the hauntings are still happening. I'll put that's probably about as um, spoiler-free <laughs> as I'm going to get. The, the, the hauntings are still happening to the family. Um, the family, by the way, are uh, Patrick Wilson, who I've spoken about quite a few times on here. I think because I, I quite like him. I think he's a really good uh, actor. And he just suits these films down to a grain. He was brilliant in The Conjuring. I thought he was great mm, in The Conjuring. Yeah. He was very, very good in the first Insidious film as well. And again, here, he has to play a, quite a, a mix of different um, uh, sort of emotions and styles. And he does it all very well. He's very good at being quite angry, very good at being quite timid. And he mixes it up very, very nicely. Um but yeah, it, it's a very strange film in that it's it's much more uh, humorous. There's a lot more humour in it. It knows exactly what kind of film it's trying to be. Um, and for that reason, I think I enjoyed it more overall than Insidious. Um, partly because it's got a solid script. The, the script is very consistent. And because it's got such this, um, the consistency to it all, you don't feel like it's a film of two halves. You don't feel like that they've gone halfway through the film 
uh, this is way too dry and way too serious. We're going to have to check, you know, mix it up a bit. It's it's all on a level, which is good. I think as well, what it does differently to the original film, the first half of the first film, the bit I liked, which I've talked about, has the Oren Pelly feel to it. Oren Pelly is the guy who's most famous for Paranormal Activity films, mm. by the way. Um, it's very much about what you can't see. So there's things that you, uh, things that are implied. There's, you know, was that something in the mirror? Lots of shadows about. So is that something that you can see in the corner, or is it literally just like a something hanging off a hook? Um, and it turns out most of the time, <laughs> no, it's nothing. It's just, just you, you know, trying to copy how your mind plays tricks on you. In this yeah. film, it's much more upfront about if there's something there, it's meant to be there. If there's if it's just them trying to make it so your mind plays tricks on you, you get that straight away. There's none of this sort of tedious, um, lots of scenes with absolutely nothing happening. <laughs> um, so that's quite good. I think that's quite a bold move. It, I suppose in many ways it could come across as quite cliched. Um, you know, you might think that something being pushed, you know, they've got a little, um, you know, the baby walker things, you know, they've just been pushed across the floor. It it okay. It is more cliched in that sense. It's not as uh, trying to make. It's not as jumpy. It's not trying to make you jump in mm. that sense. What it does is it, it properly goes for it. So when you've got things like there's a face of an old woman screaming in, <laughs> screaming straight down the camera, who's this ghostly figure, and you think, okay, they, they just they've gone balls out to just make this as freaky and as <laughs> disturbing as they can, and it's brilliant. Um, because it's just so different to to what what you'd expect from this kind of film. I think James Wan as well. He's much more accomplished as a director in this film. Lots of themes about uh, run through Insidious too are all about um, doors and gateways and things into different you know, dimensions. So that's mimicked quite a lot with almost every scene, beginning with the camera either sort of swooping through very small archways. Or a lot of the times you are just following the camera straight through a doorway as it goes up to to the characters to speak and so on. That's quite clever. I think it, it's very subtle, but you do it's not subtle so you don't notice it. It's subtle there, so you kind of pick up that. Oh, okay, so he's trying to. This is implied that um, you know things are on a different plane, different astral plane, and so on. And it, it's 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 quite good. I like I liked how um, Harry did that. So. Yeah, I mean, without trying to go around in circles any more than I already have, it's quite a quite a good horror film. If you like the first film, um, you'll probably like the second film. If you've not seen the first film, don't see the second film because it just won't make any sense to you. You've you've got you've really got to watch the first to understand what the story's about in the second. Um, but yeah, I I mean, I quite liked it. I, it was it was much better than I was expecting it to be. Okay, and finally then is a review of, not a film, but a game, Grand Theft Auto 5, which ties in with all the video game stuff we've been doing, has been released uh, on Tuesday, today, the day of recording. Me and James have been playing it, um, probably too excessively, something so he <laughs> come out. Yeah. Um, have we got a clip? Uh, do you know what? Yeah, maybe. I've no idea. Let's edit it if we have. <laughs> if not, let's not. <laughs> Here's possibly a clip. What do you want, Michael? 
I don't know. I want something that isn't this. I want to be a good dad, love my family, live the dream. Why do I have to hold your hand through this whole midlife crisis bullshit? Come here! Don't kill him! But at the same time, I really want the other stuff too. And you're plainly addicted to chaos. Well, I'm not sure that's true, Doc. I'm rich. I'm miserable. I'm pretty average for this town. I think you need a new therapist. So Grand Theft Auto 5, then a game uh, in the Grand Theft Auto series, but seems to be on a, a larger scale um, plot-wise than ever before. Yeah, um, what I really liked about it, actually, uh, just the opening to the game uh, is how this game should open. Really, uh, we've had that talk about you know, can games be cinematic? And at times, Grand Theft Auto is one of those that just about gets away with it, makes you feel like you are part of a film. Uh, opens with a heist, very Michael Mann-esque, um, and we're introduced to... And what's different about this game compared to other Grand Theft Autos is there are three playable characters now. Uh, they are all kind of interlinked. Or including the dog. Oh yeah, there's a dog in it as well, yeah. Um and you can swap between the characters. You can swap between them when you're just chilling out, but you can also swap between them during heists to make it that little bit more interactive. Mm. But, but for me, to swap between them to progress the the game. Exactly, yeah. Um everything else about the game is as you would imagine, but just bigger and it looks better. The map itself is apparently bigger than um San Andreas, Grand Theft Auto 4, and Red Dead Redemption, which was the kind of link game between uh, Grand Theft Auto 4 and, and this. So, huge, huge game. Looks brilliant. Um, and it's so it's so nice to be back in this huge area. As compared to Grand Theft Auto 4, which was in quite a dark city, you know, you've got the city side of this, but you've also got the, the countryside, the mountains, cougars who come and eat you if you're not armed properly and you know i've already i've already come across a cougar apparently there are sharks in this as well hmm. um uh, but for me the great thing about um grand theft auto that i love doing uh and steve steve disagrees with me i'm such a middle-aged man it was the, the, i was looking to see if there was a way i could indicate while i was driving i, I was thinking well, why, why why have we not got indicators yet i need to tell everyone i'm turning left and stuff like that i'm such a middle-aged player of this uh one of the first things I did when I got hold of this game is once I unlocked the middle-aged um, man in it, because there's a middle-aged character who's in witness protection, um, I went to the cinema with him, obviously. <laughs> I went to see a 60s art house film, um, which is a really weird, surrealist film. I sat there watching it for 10 minutes, just sat there in the cinema watching a fake film. And, and, and its production values are brilliant. 
Then I went to a strip club and sat there for about 15 minutes throwing dollar bills at a woman. And then I went for a round of golf. It's, it's, it's my life. I'm essentially <laughs> living... I don't have to go outside anymore. It's great. Um, but the actual kind of more exciting stuff, the driving and the shooting, all of those mechanics are a lot better than they were in the previous version of the game. And importantly for me, it's got that sense of fun back. It's made me laugh out loud on a number of occasions already. There's some really nice interplay between some characters. The radio stations are as brilliant as ever. There's some fantastic talk radio on there. Um, And, and, I've I've been playing it for about three or four hours today, and already I'm missing it. I can't believe I've come to do a fucking podcast. I want to go back to playing it. Um, it it's it's genuinely really enjoyable, and I can see my film take my film watching taking a bit of a hit. Steve, what what have your thoughts been? Um, as brilliant as you'd kind of expect, you would expect a Grand Theft Auto film to look great, and uh, sorry, game to look great, sound great. It does look great and sound great. So the story, the plot, the characters have to be better than the last ones. Grand Theft Auto 4, uh, the downloadable content aside, was poor. The, the main, obviously the Liberty City, which is meant to be New York, looked, looked amazing. Um, but the character he played was boring. He was kind of, it wasn't really exciting. He didn't, he was, he was an immigrant to America trying to make it to make his way good and he it just didn't really it wasn't exciting it wasn't kind of as over the top or you know mm. he was a bit of a dull character to play um but now they seem to have come back and gone well there's three here so you've got to like one of them at least yeah um, and, and that's part of the genius of this game i think is that there, there is genuinely a character for everyone i, I saw that someone earlier today said it's quite interesting that um, the Franklin, the the young African American who's trying to escape from the hood, uh, he is the story that he's basically the figure that we uh, we associate with Grand that that kind of character we associate with Grand Theft Auto. Then there's Michael, the middle aged retired in witness protection bank robber, which is the kind of mature story that. Uh, that Rockstar want to tell the mature gangster cinematic story that they want to tell and then there's Trevor who I've not had the pleasure of meeting yet because um, I've been dicking around in cinemas and on golf courses and stuff but who is a genuine psychopath and is basically how most people tend to play the game after a little while which is just go on killing sprees and kill people for the fun of it um, so you've got three very different characters and already I've been playing my characters befitting their character so Franklin I've been going around doing a lot of driving doing a lot of jobs trying to make my way um, with Michael I've been taking a drive to the beach because you know that's what my middle aged guy going through a midlife crisis might do just go take a drive to the beach and hang out there for the day so I, I really like these this multi-character setup for it um, and yeah I, I just I've just got the fun of playing it back again and it, it's brilliant I've not had this much fun since GTA San Andreas, and that was a game I spent a lot of time. Do you with. think they've taken influence from a lot of popular modern TV programs for the characters? I mean, Franklin feels like something out of the wire, and and mm-hmm. Michael definitely 
has a Tony Soprano kind of yeah, he, to him. He's even visiting a shrink, and he's got mm. a he's got a son who's a bit of a waste of space and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, it's taken a lot of influence from TV, I think. But uh, what I do like is Rockstar's prism that it reflects society through. So there is there's a computer game in there which is clearly taking the piss out of the Call of Duty series and you know the way they deal with that. They're, the the TV I can just sit down and watch for ages. There's a Pop Idol style program, um, Fame and Shame, I think it's called. I sat and watched that for 10 minutes earlier. There's a, a cartoon um, about impotent liberals called Impotent Rage, a superhero who's this liberal, <laughs> uh, hip- hypocritical liberal who gets really angry about things, but drives a gas-guzzling motor car and stuff like that. Um, And and I do think it it does have this really nice... It it just holds a mirror up to modern-day America and has some fun with it. And that's the most... It does have a lot of fun with it. It's it's funny. It's a bit ridiculous, but grounded in a kind of reality. And, yeah, I've no idea how long it'll take for me to get bored of it, but... At this moment, I'm thinking I might not bother getting a PS4 straight away because I'm quite happy with this. I can't Um, believe the amount of press that it's been getting from mm. just the the strangest of places. I was listening to PM on uh, Radio 4 and they're talking about Grand Theft Auto 5, interviewing people from IGN and stuff. And I just think, am I in an alternative universe? where It's really weird, isn't it? It's, It's... Basically, I think there's only ever been one film made that's been more expensive than this game. Um, 170 million, I think. 170 million, yeah. There's well, there's very few films that have been made with a bigger budget yeah. than this film, um, and it's probably going to make as much as Avengers did mm. in its first year. Yeah, you know, it's it's a huge, bigger, huge bigger export than James Bond, apparently. Yeah, yeah, and and like, yeah, that's right. This all comes from a a computer games company that started in Scotland, which mm. is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's really positive for the British economy. Um, but I can just see by the end of the week we'll have the won't someone think of the children style moral panic articles coming mm. out, and uh, yeah, we're just gonna have to deal with it. it. Happens every time. But those of you who who like games. I think you. I genuinely don't know why you won't enjoy this. It's it is the most polished version of Rockstar's vision to date, uh, and I think it is. It, it it's a really nice kind of finishing stamp on on this current generation of consoles. Goes there you go. Nothing's going to top this now in this generation. Let's move on to the next ones. Okay. Well, um brings to an end our new new release uh, reviews what what new releases next week are we looking at okay uh, three and I'll, I'm just going to say right now I'm, I'm not confident <laughs> next week is going to be a tough one um, we've got The Call which is the new Halle Berry film which has one of the worst trailers I've ever seen the new WWE Halle Berry film yeah, that's it. It's made by uh, Worldwide Entertainment. Made, World made, by, Entertainment. made by Vince McMahon and, and um, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, <laughs> so we've got that. We've got um, R.I.P.D., uh, which is basically Men in Black with Ghosts. Um, 
Yeah, it's not got good reviews. And then finally, uh, and I think as kind of editor of the site, I've got to put my hand up, I've got to man up and go and see Diana. The legend isn't the true story. Oh, Christ, it's horrendous. I've just seen a trailer. uh, I've seen a trailer and there's there's no dialogue in the trailer. Uh, So I'm, I'm hoping it's a silent film. Uh, doubt it will be. Yeah. I'll tell you what. A, a nice eighty-minute silent film would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'd take that. I'll tell you what would have made this film better. Yeah. If Muhammad Al Fayed had funded it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we if we'd had a genuine, if he no, if he'd written it, that would, that would <laughs> make it even better. Um, yeah, I've got a feeling we're not going to get really into the truth of. What happened in that in Paris? Oh, it's just going to be boring and look how amazing she was. Isn't she brilliant? He's not going to look at any kind of the, the scandals and anything like that. It'll just be look how brilliant she was. Then look how the press killed her. Well, yeah. Well, we'll see. But I, I imagine I'll be the only one seeing. <laughs> so that's next week. You'll, anyway, you'll, you'll be in a cinema full of really old people watching it. I guarantee it. Oh God, yeah. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I'm a professional, though. The things I do for you people. We appreciate so, yeah, you taking one on the gym for us, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of you bastards better watch RIPD, <laughs> then. One of you bastards better watch The Call, uh, which is available on Brazilian Netflix for anyone who... I'll say we leave the house. Yeah. Or White House Down. We haven't reviewed White House Down yet. No, yeah, White House Down, that was a new release this week. And all I would say to that is just refer to my um, review for Olympus Has Fallen. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that'll, that'll do the job. Change the actor's it, name, wear a prank. It's yeah. a bit longer. Um, and it's Roland Emmerich, so it's going to be ludicrous. But yeah, just change the act. It just, I'm sure it's pretty much the same. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to see it either, but I'll be able to give a, a review of Prisoners. I'm going to see a preview of Prisoners with Hugh Jackman okay. and Jake Gyllenhaal. So. Oh, yeah. I, um, that looks interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Certainly yeah. looks better than Diana. Certainly. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, up next, we've got what we're recommending for next week. recommendations in for the week coming up on tv on friday there is a lot worth watching some may clash so you may have to get your uh, record function out on whichever recordable device you are watching on uh, five to eight uh, 25 to eight on bbc3 shrek is on uh, always worth watching one of the best kind of kids films that's also for adults as well uh, nine o'clock, more for Hurt Lock. The Hurt Locker is on. Uh, nine o'clock on ITV2, Paranormal Activity is on. Uh, and, uh, 11 o'clock, ITV4, Green Mile is on. So lots to watch on Friday on the television. There's also Epic Movie, but don't watch that because it's terrible. I haven't even watched You've I, actually seen it? No, I haven't, oh. I haven't. I just know it is. Okay. I, yeah. it's what, it's, it, I can just tell you now it is. Titanic's is that the one with Sean Maguire in it? I don't know these people. I believe Sean Maguire. Uh, that is like a it's a piss take out of three hundred or something. But yeah, uh, Titanic's also on um, at nine o'clock on Film Four. It's on for four hours. I'll tell you now. The boat sinks. Excellent. There you go. 
Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, James, what are you recommending for us? Okay, yeah, my recommendation, I'll go cheat. I, that film that I told you about, right at the top of the podcast, uh, In the Mood for Love. Well, that's actually on Mubi, UK, M-U-B-I. Um, I mentioned that quite a little while ago when we did a bit of a review of streaming services. And so I thought I'd just replug that again because it fits in quite nicely. You get, a, I think you get a minimum of two weeks free trial to Mubi. It might even be a month if you sign in via Facebook. Have a look on there because In the Mood for Love is one of their films that is going to be available for the next 30 days. Uh, the way movie works is each day it puts on a new film that takes off a film. So films get about 30 days uh, on the site. Uh, it's like having a really knowledgeable uh, friend kind of suggest films to you. So it's, it's a nice little service. It's, like and it's only two ninety nine a month. Recommend What's films. that? It's like having us recommend films for you. Yeah, it's like having knowledgeable versions of us recommend films. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really nice service. Two ninety nine a month, and you get to see some re- some films which are actually quite difficult to see uh, in other areas. They're not. Yeah, you know, a lot of them aren't generally on Netflix. There's a lot of world cinema there, a lot of documentaries. It's really nice. So In the Mood for Love is on Mubi. It gives you a chance to watch it for nothing. And Owen, what about you? Have we managed to lose Owen? Yeah, I'm just back now. Oh, sorry. Did, oh, God. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll edit that. Just give me um, 10 seconds of silence so that when I'm editing it, I go, what's that silence? And I investigate this bit. James, go and investigate this bit. Thank you. That'll do. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, he just said to you, Owen, so go go with your recommendation. Just straight up. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to recommend a film um, that's on TV. Uh, we've talked about it before. I think I talked about it with Jerry and James has also mentioned it. And I think Steve said it's one of those films he's got no interest in seeing. Um, <laughs> but I'm picking Citizen Kane. Um, it's on, uh, I think I'll put Film 4 on the website. But it's, I think it's actually on BBC 4. Um, I need to edit that. <laughs> on Sunday, okay. on the 22nd of September at 9pm. Uh, it's uh, absolutely a classic film. One I only saw recently... And um, obviously it's well known for being Orson Welles' directorial debut that made him into this international superstar director. Um, and quite rightly, it's it's really good. Very important film, yeah, um, but also just, just a fantastic story and just incredible. So that's my pick, Citizen Kane. I, well, I'm actually going to watch that now and then you can all have my review on the, the most Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Most important film of all time. Yeah, don't tease us, Steve. If you watch it, you've got to watch it. If you say you're going to do it. My my only knowledge of it is is The Simpsons going to bed. <laughs> 
is the Kane from Citizen Kane. Like 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 a lot of classics films, Steve's reference point is the Simpsons parody. Of it. <laughs> they actually had the um, Rear Window parody of the Simpsons on um, the other day. While you were still laid up. Yes. Oh, Brilliant. that's nice. And I also Perfect I also thing. didn't watch Rush at the intended time because more irony for me, my car failed its MOT, so I can to the cinema. <laughs> Brilliant. So yes, just ruined by irony my cinema watching it. <laughs> I, I'm concerned that you're watching the call next week in that case because that means you could be dealing with a serial killer. That's that's a worry, oh, Steve. Um, at, at the moment, while this irony thing works, I've stopped watching scary films in case. Yeah, it's sensible. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want anything happening. Anyway, that's all for this week. Uh, thanks to everyone who listening. Thanks for the guys from the Pupcast uh, for joining us as well. Uh, you can find the website www.failedcritics.com, and we're on Twitter as well at Failed Critics. Um, and we'll see you next week. The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman and Owen Hughes with original music provided by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics and on Twitter at at failedcritics. There's a lot of philosophy about love, and there were some kind of scenes where they got physically involved, and a lot of those didn't make the final cut of the film. And I think it's, I think it's the better for it, to be honest. It's one of those films that just has little moments that don't necessarily mean something at the time, and you need to, you need to be watching, you need to be concentrating because little tiny touches suddenly come back and make up this whole, this whole narrative makes sense. Um, soundtrack is an amazing soundtrack as well I, it's again it's one of those things I think we've said it about on the podcast before a few times about if you kind of fall under the spell of a film sometimes it's difficult to put into words exactly why you enjoyed it I know Owen felt that way it was Whisper of the Heart wasn't mm. it last, last week um, the, the performances in this are absolutely wonderful and it, it does remind me loads of Brief Encounter which is one of my favourite British films ever uh, and this wonderfully evocative that's a, another wonderfully evocative romantic film and it it seems timeless yet also completely alien to you in the sense that people just don't act like that these days people take what they want people you know renege on their wedding vows if they that is not working for them and it's just this it's a bizarre yet wonderful idea of loyalty um it i I also and again anyone who listens to me on it 98 minutes as well yeah this is yeah it sounds like the kind of film that would last three hours but it really does it's and that's another thing it doesn't outstay its welcome it's got it's got a story to tell and it tells it and it lets that story sink in and you think about it and I just haven't seen a film as beautifully shot as this for a few years, full stop. Okay, that's 
you will watch this and you will fall in love with the visuals. It's probably my favourite visual film since Amelie. It's really interesting use of light, shade and colours and the, and the production design on it is, is superb. Um, there is a sequel to it called 2046 which is a very, very different film using one of the main characters and it kind of explores a lot of things there. So I am going to watch that next. Um, but yeah, if you haven't got around to In the Mood for Love, believe the hype, it is one of the finest films I've seen from the last decade. Yeah, it's interesting. He's a very critically acclaimed director, isn't he? Uh, mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I've not personally seen any of his films, but, you know, is it Chunking Express, which is the one that everyone sort of recommends yeah. first? And I, I mean, I really would like to see his films. I think it, it seems pretty much up my street as well, from the way you've described them. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I think you'd like it, Owen. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I don't mind a bit of romance sometimes. Yes. No, yeah, you're. I think you're quite an optimist at heart, Owen. You reckon? I think, yeah, yeah, I think so. Not, I'm not, not like, so sure. see, not like Jerry. <laughs> not like Jerry. Jerry would have hated this. <laughs> yeah, Jerry's got his big cynical chip on his shoulder. Um, and of course, Steve, you're going to have to read it. It's just a, an issue there, but um, you may be able to get a dub version. It's in colour though, isn't it? I mean, it's not black. It's in colour yeah, though. Yeah, it's not black and white, it's so it's not there. completely art house. That's <laughs> assuming that I want to watch it. Yeah, that's very true. Romance <laughs> is my thing. There's no car chases in it. Um, I don't even think a gun gets pulled, Steve. So, and there's definitely no uh, aliens or <laughs> or ghosts or anything like that. Just just two people who kind of love each other but not sure if they can be together. It's quite sad. Why Why do I want something to make me sad? <laughs> <laughs> I've got enough of that in real life. Yeah. Oh, you're bringing yeah. the tone of the podcast down now, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Get That's the violin Steve's back. our everyman. <laughs> Steve's our everyman. That's what I'm here for, to bring the tone down. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, rain, to rain in you two when you get a bit hipster and lovey-ish. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah. It's two on one now. Anyway, Owen, your film for this week is... Um, my, my film feature... It does feature guns, a lot, quite a lot of guns, actually. Um, after James just says that uh, In the Mood for Love doesn't, this is just full of them. I watched a 1992 Belgian film. Uh, yeah. I made the mistake of calling it a French film earlier and James corrected me. It's a Belgian yeah. film, Man Bites Dog. Um, it's from 1992. I think probably before Blair Witch came out, other than Cannibal Holocaust, it was quite probably the most famous um, sort of fame footage mockumentary type um film actually it's uh, a yeah. sort of satirical very dark uh documentary that that's basically the characters in it are the film crew um who are following a thief and a murderer and a serial killer and everything that's bad and he's played by benoit now i'm gonna get this wrong because i always get names wrong on the podcast anyway benoit polvorde I think that's who. I think that's right. Yeah, he plays a guy called Ben, and he is just horrible. I mean, he's one of the most. It's not even anti-villain, anti-hero territory. He's just an outright villain in this. He's just really despicable character who just goes uh, around murdering people just willy-nilly, and you know, at one point in the film, which is just the the most uncomfortable scene with them just 
all like laughing and being jovial around this rape that's occurring. And it's just the the most disturbing film I've seen for ages. It's just really unsettling. Um, so, I mean, it, <laughs> at the same time, it's a really good film. And I don't want to don't say, like, uh, I enjoyed it because that makes it sound like, you know, only a sicko would enjoy this kind of mm. this story. But at the same time, you kind of really do think, oh, this is actually quite clever. And what they're doing is satirising, like, media um, and this constant need to follow things and get the most, you know, important information is the truth. So they follow this serial killer and you think you have to take a step back and think, well, you know, how much is following what's happening and where should the line be? Should these people be stepping in to stop it or is them getting involved in it kind of just basically a, a, a comedy of, you know, these people who, uh, you know, these documentary makers shouldn't be getting involved. They should be They should be putting a stop to this and saying, hang on a minute, <laughs> you're going around killing people, talking to camera about the best way to dispose of children's bodies. And it's just, yeah. oh, it's just, it's just such a grimy film. It leaves you with this horrible sort of sticky blah in your mouth because it's just, it's just horrible, really unpleasant. Um, but at the same time, it is quite funny. Can I say it's quite funny? I find it very Ugh. funny. I'll be honest. I find it very... It, at times, yeah, I had to look away. Yes. Um, I, I think it, I found it very funny in the sense that I could just about make that leap to seeing the satire of it. And yeah. Going, right, well, okay, it looks very real, but it's obviously not, and they're clearly making a point, yeah. and therefore I can just... But it... It reminds me, of, uh, in a way, of some of the uh, some Chris Morris work or something mm, like that, mm. in the sense that it it really kind of walks that very fine line where you're going, God, I don't know if I'm meant, I don't know if I should find this funny. I don't know if I should yeah. find entertainment in this because for me, some of the best Chris Morris work does that. The the nine eleven pullout that he did for the Observer, for example, was an absolute. Uh, you know, that was just a year later, mm. and then elements of four lines and it and you're right it is about that kind of media obsession and what it does very cleverly i think is it actually makes the viewer complicit in what's going on yeah and it actually says to you yeah you're enabling this by you know if this was a real documentary you'd be watching it and you'd be essentially allowing this to happen um and it did this all before kind of natural born killers um I think it's a very groundbreaking film and it's a very brave film, but you're right. It's possibly too effective in some ways and it does, it can make you feel a bit sick just watching it. Does, it does, definitely. I mean, the, the the problem with it, I suppose, for me, really, was um, because it tries to make you feel like you're watching a real documentary because of just how obscene and how mm. um, absurd it is as well. Yeah. Um, it does take you out of that a little bit and you... I mean, it, it tries to mix, like, um, the mundane and the macabre, you know. It's, mm. You've got very, um, really just very dark uh, and disturbing scenes mixed in with them just being in the pub, having a drink and having a laugh, yeah. you know. Um, so it tries to make it feel more realistic. And at times, yeah. it it kind of takes it out of that when, when you have these darker moments. Um, yeah. So that was that was the only kind of real problem I had with it. Um, thematically speaking, because the narrative just kind of, it just removed itself from from the film occasionally. 
but otherwise it's a it's a solid film and um yeah, definitely worthy of its cult status because it's such such a well-made film. I think it was only like fifteen grand budget as well, so it's proper like, tiny budget. So it's like yeah. you know proper guerrilla filmmaking where they just <laughs> rocked up in places and you know in town centres and filmed bits of the film and you know it's um, quite an achievement yeah. really to get what they and, did out of it. And I think it works because Benoit is he just holds the camera. He's a horrible, Brilliant. like you say, he's a despicable person. But it's an incredible performance from one man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's just a, a fantastic actor, but um, really <laughs> unsettling character. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, Man by So it's the first time I've seen it. I'm, I've been an advocate for found footage films in the past, and I don't really want to drag up the debate again. Uh, well, you know, for what this one ticks my boxes because it's it's, yeah. uh, it's a documentary, so that's, that's fine. Right. I'm fine with found footage documentaries, so it's all good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, worth a watch though. Definitely. Um, mm. Wouldn't watch it if you're, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, likely to be that disturbed by it. If you've got a strong stomach, yeah. then then it's worth a watch. Very, very. Yeah, it's not. Very... It's not one to watch with the family at Christmas. No, not really. No. Okay. Um. All right. So my review is of a film called I Declare War from um, last year. It's a Canadian film, um, directed by Jason LaPere and Robert Wilson, also written by Jason LaPere. People you probably never have heard of, but still, this is apparently the done thing, is to read out who directed and things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Steve's learning. Steve's becoming a film journo. Anyway, uh, it's a (laughs) film about a group of 12-year-olds who um, go off to play Capture the flag in their neighbourhood woods, despite it being set in modern times and they're not playing Call of Duty which is probably far flung from reality really, but there you go, they go off into the woods and they go and play capture the flag um, but they're, as 12 year olds do, their imaginations run wild so the rocks become grenades, trees become controlled, everything becomes real essentially in the film, you start seeing it as you would be seeing it through the kids imaginations so they're basically using real guns and you see the kids actually getting shot properly and then it will flash back and show that it's actually not real. It's just them pretending. Um, so it kind of flicks in between the two kind of realities, the real one and their imagination. Um, it's quite stereotypical in as a war film. Essentially, that's what it's trying to be. And it's mm. trying to... Um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but it's just trying to be put across the message that war is bad. It doesn't matter what kind of war it is, you know, whether it's kids playing games or some World War Two or some massive, you know, Star Wars type science fiction war. It brings out the worst in people. And inevitably, that's what happens in this film. Um, some of the kids end up being complete assholes and doing things that are quite nasty, but then you've also got, you know, the people who can't deal with authority, the people who have been bullied, the people who are excellent strategists, the people who are jealous of other people. And it's just, a, it is just, a, every character is um, just a, basically a stereotypical character from any other war film. It doesn't do anything, ori- despite the idea, the concept of the film, it doesn't do anything original with the actual, you know, war film genre I, I think he's I was going to say do you think that's intentional do you think it's trying to 
Because it seems like quite an unconventional film, mm. really, an unconventional. It, it sounds like a good idea, and it starts off being quite enjoyable, and then it kind of goes a bit downhill. I don't, the, the performances aren't exactly brilliant, but it, I, I think it's, the messages are just a bit too strong for it to yeah. kind of come up, to work properly. It, they're really forcing the message home, like mm. with with a sledgehammer. And so, so it's not like they've tried to um, take the sort of piss out of standard soldiers. It's more that it just falls into the traps of every other. Yeah, they, they don't. Yeah. They're, they're definitely not taking the mick out of films. It's not a parody or a, or anything like that. It, it it's it's played quite straight. Although there are kind of a few funny bits. And there's, there's one there's one character. They're obviously doing war, pretending to be war, and there's one character who suddenly imagines that he's got kind of cyclops style laser vision <laughs> and the other okay. and the other kids sort of, uh, the other kids sort of looking at him like what are you doing this isn't what we're playing <laughs> but, you know there's a, there's a few funny but it's not it's not taking the mick or parodying the war film genre mm. it, it is playing it quite straight from what i could yeah. gather i don't think it's trying to be a kids film either I've, yeah i think they would have been better off not putting the message in, trying to hammer the message home so hard because it's quite obvious what the message was anyway. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was quite, anyone watching it could have seen that and they could have played it a lot more subtly and the film probably would have worked a lot better and then people could have watched it without having that being forced home and just enjoyed the film. Because the best, the best films of a message don't force the message home. Mm. It's, in, it's in, mm. like, kind of like District 9. Everyone knows there was a message in that. They didn't force you could just watch it and think, oh, it's a science fiction film about aliens. Or then you could look at it deeper and think, there's a message behind that, there's something behind that. They're trying to make a point. And and that and I declare war probably would have worked a lot better should they have tried that approach. It seems pretty interesting. Um I mean I've never heard of it before, but it's it seems well, No, I hadn't. Where did you see it, Steve? Somebody recommended it to me on the Football 365 forum and mm. then I had to find a copy to download through uh, some source or another. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, fair it enough. It wasn't available. I'm sure it sounds like the type of film that pop up on Netflix at some point. Yeah. yeah. Keep an eye out for that. It seems... Um, mm. I'd, I'd yeah, like no, watch it, I, I think. I, yeah, I, I do like watching films where I like the idea even if the uh, even if the execution's not yeah. quite spot on. This does sound like quite an intriguing idea. It's, so it's a definitely a good idea, and it's not unwatchable. You can definitely watch it without getting too annoyed with it. It's just not, mm-hmm. not overly kind of. You kind of at the end of it, you think that could have been a lot better. Mm. You don't go away thinking, "God, I've wasted my time here," but you go away thinking that could have been done a lot better. Yeah, but, but then who am I to judge? Well, you were a failed critic. That's what you're, you're here to do. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's all for what we've been watching. Up next is our uh, little chat on um, video games and films, crossovers, etc., and our guest feature. So, yep, James here. This week sees the release of not only one of the most anticipated video games of all time, but uh, a game with a budget unmatched by all but pretty much one Hollywood film and projected taking surpassing even the Avengers from last year. I'm talking about Grand Theft Auto V, 
the latest in the series, which started off borrowing from films, now stands apart as a cultural phenomenon of its own. And to mark this occasion, we're going to explore the history of the relationship between cinema and video games, what worked more often than not, what didn't, uh, and what the future holds. And I'll be honest, it would be extremely generous to call me even a casual gamer these days. So I've been joined by Jackson Tyler and Callum Petch from the... Hello, yes, Hello. hi guys, from the uh, the podcast, uh, podcast.com, uh, who are hopefully more of a Super Nintendo to my Sega uh, Sega Mega CD. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us, fellas. Now, I'll, let's get, think back to when video games were nice and simple. Uh, my first computer was an Amstrad CPC 464 you know, uh, tape drive. Came with its own monitor as well, which is quite, you know, quite fancy. Um, now, back then, film tie-in games were quite common, but rarely had much to do with the film. I remember one of my first games I remember actually was the Platoon video game, uh, which was essentially a man running along killing things. Um, it came with a free tape copy of Smokey Robinson's Tracks of My Tears, though, which was uh, nice. It got, got my musical education going at a young age. Um, what about you guys? What what kind of film tying games do you remember from your youth um any good ones any particularly terrible ones film tying games are generally pretty terrible uh how they are they're made they have to be yeah. made to be released at a certain time mm. uh, like there's an example of i think it was there was the armageddon game where the whole thing was um built around you were going to play with bruce willis and the focus testing came back and they were like no one wants to be with bruce willis they want to be bruce willis <laughs> so they had to change the game to play as bruce willis but all the dialogue made it sound as if bruce willis was talking to you so it just the whole game made it seem like bruce willis was talking to another bruce willis in his head <laughs> that's the kind of level of quality we're dealing with yeah yeah, you mentioned that that's actually a game called Apocalypse. That has nothing oh, to do with Armageddon. Sorry, yeah, but sorry. but yeah, that, that sort of thing. But they almost sound just like you know shutting down, especially in with regards to um, licensed games of kids' films, which mm. especially back in the um, play, early PlayStation One era and kind of pretty much all the way through PlayStation Two era as well, were basically Super Mario sixty four knockoffs. And usually yeah. pretty bad ones at that. They had very little to do with it. I do remember um, the Toy Story 2 uh, one, where you were supposed to play as Buzz rescuing Woody, which had very little to do with the movie of any kind, but just kept inserting me, like these FMVs taken straight from a movie. And I remember yeah. at the time, like, like you know, when I was six, and I didn't, and my parents were actually watching TV as they wanted to watch like Toy Story 2 on VHS for like the seventh time. I could just pop that in and sit and go, oh, it's like I'm watching the film. <laughs> but then you can look back nowadays and you realise the camera is terrible. It's all phoned in. It's, it, it's but most of the time they are just made to you know cash in with little thoughts. Sometimes you do get good ones, but they're often the ones that have little to do with the source material itself, like. Um, one of my favourite ones going up was, it's not exactly movie time, but it's still related to a sort of property like that, was um, Sheepdog and Wolf, which was a PlayStation 1 stealth action puzzle platformer based on the Ralph Wolf, Sam Sheepdog, Looney Tunes shorts. Which, right. Which, uh, like, just, it captured that sort of, you know, but essentially it was like you were playing a Ralph Wolf, Sam Sheepdog thing, but from the perspective of Ralph Wolf and you'd win. Because mm. it's that sort of, it's those sort of ones that be like for every one that's decent and inventive and have cameras that are not crap, there's like a million ones just shunted out the door with little forethought of a guard and just you know with like terrible graphics and broken controls and you know, like just the barest I've made to. 
you know, made to um, get, earn a quick buck, essentially. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it always seemed to me that the, the movie industry saw that the video games industry is just some upstarts that they could treat as they would toy manufacturers, mm. essentially. This was just an extension of the toys, Happy Meals, merchandising that they could do, earn some money from licensing and uh, a knockout. I, I still met the Terminator 2 game was one of the worst things I've ever played. Um, I think I was on an Amiga, actually. But um, is there a point where kind of you felt the tide starting to turn? I think one for me was um, it, when I was... It was a GameCube game, and it was... I can't remember the exact title of it, but I got to fly an, a Star Wars X-Wing, Probably and it felt... Rebel Squadron or Rogue Squadron? Rogue Squadron, that's the yeah, one. That's pretty good. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it was just the first time I thought, oh, actually, for the first time, I actually feel like this this has some connection to a film that I I enjoy. It made me feel for the first time that this is almost kind of like me being in a game. I suppose um, GoldenEye on the uh, Nintendo 64 had mm. had an element of that where it was a recognisable world and it it was like someone started to treat games with a little bit more respect. Um, yeah, well, there is also a difference between uh, games that are made for a film release date and mm-hmm. games which are just based on a licensed property. So, like, the Rogue Squadron game was just a Star Wars game that came out, and mm-hmm. the other uh, other games are just, they're making them, like, two months to sell to kids. Mm. Uh, the, you've always had people making good licensed games for stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't like there were no good games, yeah. and then all the good games came, because games are still pretty shit now. They can be. <laughs> it's not, you know... Um, yeah. uh, and I mentioned like, like Dick Tracy on the Mega Drive as one of the, or the Genesis and the Earth as one of the good ones. For example, one of ones which I'd argue was actually better than the movie it was based on, but <laughs> that sort of thing. Right. Like, also, one of my ways of doing it is like there were two Star Wars film, games that came out with, you know within the month of the release of Revenge of the Sith. One which was based on the on the movie and was a terrible side scrolling brawler. And one which was Lego Star Wars, which was, you know, like an affectionate parody of all three. And that was the good one because it bothered to have care and attention to, you know, attention to detail. And it wasn't kind of just like a shrewd marketing thing of now the kids can buy this and and Lucasfilm earns crap tons more money. As someone who played both of those games, like an idiot, uh, there wasn't. It wasn't a side scroller. It was a D. But that Revenge of the Sith license game wasn't good, but it was okay. As they go, it was a better one. I think <laughs> one thing to note would be one of the best license games um, that came out in the PS2 era, where most of them were just the worst ever, mm. was the Spider-Man 2 video game, which yes. is great. Yes. Um, somehow they made, you know. I made a Spider-Man game really great. You swung around the city, and they've made Spider-Man games since, and then none of them are as good. That is one of the no. best games ever in terms of a single mechanic. Mm. So, but it's not very cinematic. They're just things that mm. um, te- they they you know they take the property of a film and then they put them into a game. Whereas mm. you have the other way of um, games borrowing from films in that more overt way, like. Obviously, you have the FMV games in the 90s, which were super, super dumb. And no, kind of yeah. Like, you know, there was the Star Trek Borg, where they essentially filmed an episode of Star Trek Voyager from the first person, and you had to make decisions. It was, I was, they got pretty stupid. Define um, decisions, Jackson. You had to decide whether you wanted to go with Q or not, and if you didn't go with Q, you got a game over in the first five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'd see loads of this has just passed me by, and I, I kind of feel like I wasted my youth not playing these games now, which is which is you sad. Um, now, obviously, we've talked about, yeah, at one point they started to use licensed products in a decent way and come up with good games. But then there was definitely a switch, and I think it was you know, almost certainly as technology became more advanced, about attempts to make games actually feel like films. Obviously, um, some did it in quite a, an overt, uh, homage way, like uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, for example, lots of Scarface uh influences there a number of other cinematic influences a lot of you know michael mann's heat and things like that but then we had games like for example heavy rain which essentially tried to have you act out a film uh, and make decisions um did any of them yeah la noir again was you know kind of trying to feel like a an la confidential-esque film rather than just being a game and have any of those games uh, games ever come close for you to achieving that aim of becoming a film that you live? No, uh, no. Every time you get Jacks onto the podcast here, he gets all immediately like negative and cynical. Everything's crap. Everything's no, terrible. No, 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 no. I'm not saying everything's crap. I'm saying that that's not what games do well. They get sure there are some situations in a game where you feel like you're this is a dumb phrase of you're in a movie but none of them happen through them trying to be movies so in the gta game when you get that feeling it's never because they made a good cutscene and they wrote good dialogue it's because the the city is designed well and some random guy just jumped in your way and then you just began a car it's the stuff that evolves out of the world rather than them attempting to like be like films you go i mean like there's this game called far cry 2 which people didn't like very much because um it it was essentially all systems and no narrative and it's one of the most cinematic games ever because all the moments evolve naturally and that's when you get that feeling of this is awesome this is a moment because it evolves naturally rather than you just doing what has been programmed like um call of duty would be now yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like one of the first things like, with the Medal of Honor Frontlines intro where it basically ripped off the D-Day landings from Save It Private Ryan. Yeah. That's what, it's a kind of thing that at the time you thought like, wow, this is amazing. Then you look back, then you know, you've come across and you find more natural sort of things. Nowadays you look back and you realise it's pretty much just like a go here, rush here, go there, go there, shoot that guy, shoot that guy, move, move, move. Like, like you're in a movie and every, or like essentially the Battlefield 3 single player where essentially it feels like you are an extra in a movie that the, that the game's already scripted out. And if you happen to get in the way of its actors, like if you stand behind a piece of cover of the game preordained months before, that's that this guy's going to go behind me, he's been pushed out. Like that sort of thing. Where it's more like a roller coaster ride than a movie. Oh, no, no. And yeah, I think I, I, I would agree with you actually. And uh, uh, yeah, a few of those games mentioned just, yeah, you, you can tell what they're trying to do, but. Um, I'm getting the feeling now, uh, and speaking, you know, quickly to Jackson a couple of days ago on Twitter, that you think films are maybe, uh, well, games are going to move away from that now. Are they going to stop trying to be films? Well, are they gonna... it's not that they're going to stop trying. You because st- essentially, what try to be that kind of imitating films are the big expensive video games on consoles. Mm-hmm. So you've got your Call of Duties, and essentially, Uncharted Two was the peak of this, where it was just an Indiana Jones movie. And, and the, the game, it had it had gameplay, and the gameplay was like you interacted, but all of the main enjoyment parts of the game came from it being like an Indiana Jones movie. Whereas now the games you have um, that you that are doing really well are these smaller, these really, really tiny games that are all about your individual mechanics. So you have Gone Home, which is a story based game 
but the story you only interact through reading things that are just laying around, so it's nothing like a film. It's just it's you, you, the stories you can only tell in video games. You've got Gunpoint, mm. which is all about uh, this is a puzzle thing about linking switches to plugs, which sounds really dumb, but it's actually really good because you're basically rewiring this thing and jumping around with one of the you jump a lot. Jumping is good. Um, <laughs> or, and, or like um, Hotline Miami, which yeah, is put like Miami. a giant indictment against games that have you go out and murder people for very little plot by getting you to go out and kill lots of people with very little plot, but then making you walk back through your carnage afterwards. And, with like, I, I, and you do it like, you know, in this like Twitch gameplay sort of, you have one life, everything dies in one hit, including you, but there's pulsing music and you can restart immediately. So it's that sort of like drug kind of thing. And then when you finish level and just all the sound just cuts out and you have to walk back through your carnage just to make you realise, oh god, what have I done? Or in terms of getting across that same thing but in scripted mediums, being like Spec Ops The Line, which tells a story which could only be told through video games which starts off, that pretty much is like a Heart of Darkness adaptation and then just just slowly turns it around of of insulting you for getting enjoyment out of playing games like Call of Duty and that sort of thing in a way that was really, that I love to death anyway. Um, I want to mention the Walking Dead game that came out. People will be talking about that a lot in terms of things that are kind of like cinematic. And essentially that evolved out of Heavy Rain. And Telltale made a bunch of adventure games that were proper adventure games about puzzles. And Heavy Rain with this play this movie, Jason, Jason, Jason thing. Um, And essentially what The Walking Dead is, which people like liken to films a lot because it's all dialogue almost entirely it's all dialogue and it's all character so i guess that is the most similar to films that we've got but on the other hand it is all about your interaction with it and even though your interaction doesn't change the game the the, your interaction changes the way you see other characters and your own um just your your own experience through it so it, it is it could also be only told of the game you couldn't make that as a movie because if you can't decide whether you're going to like Kenny or you're going to like like Ben, you know, then then that game falls falls apart. It could not work unless you were in it. And it's hard to describe if you haven't played it, but yeah. It Sorry, on- yeah, Jackson, Jackson's dragging up old podcast quit um, <laughs> arguments between me and him. I'm, I'm, re- I'm really not. I'm just pointing out that, <laughs> that if you um, that just, just it on the surface does look very filmy because all people talking. Mm. But the way you interact with it is crucial to your enjoyment of it. But the way you interact with Uncharted 2 is not, because that is the same every time for everyone. Hmm. Plus also, you know, in regards of you saying, you know, that Walking Dead and Heavy Rain comparison, I'd also argue Walking Dead is infinitely better written than Heavy Rain. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, no. Do you know, I have learned so much just in these 15 minutes. I, I, yeah, yeah. me and my walk into game and pick up a, a something off the shelf there. Uh, there's a load of stuff there I'm going to look into. Thanks very much, gents. That's been absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, thank you very much for coming on Fail Critics this week. Uh, and just to say again, it's www.popcast.com. Is that correct? As in dogs, as in it's a thing. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah, it's a thing. So you can <laughs> you can find these, you can and on yeah. iTunes actually you find these gents there. Thanks very much, guys. So that was our uh, or James's little chat with the guys from the Pupcast dot com on um, kind of the history of of. Um, 
game games being adapted from movies. Um, it's obviously with the release of Grand Theft Auto Five in mind. They made me feel so middle aged. You know, <laughs> I, I was just listening to them. Uh, and at times, I, it was—I don't know what you're talking about. I, it really made me feel my age. They—they bloody love their games, whereas I kind of—I buy games now and again. But listening to them talk so passionately, uh, but they were kind of nerds as well. And God <laughs> bless them. Um, yeah, it, that there was a nice chat. Thanks, thanks again, guys, for doing that. Yeah. So we're now going to have a a bit of a chat of. Um, well, James, why don't you introduce it? Okay, well, yeah, that was a brief discussion about how games have become more cinematic and how films have been the kind of inspiration and source material for games. Uh, and obviously, our our specialist subjects, if you can call it that, is films. And so, what we're going to talk about is the kind of checkered history um, and some some if we can find some good examples. And I'm sure there are plenty of poor examples of. What happens when people try and convert games into films and use games as the source material uh, for films? I, I did just want to say I did agree with them that when when there's a film uh, a game released to tie in with a, a film's release date, then yeah. that they usually are terrible. When you get yeah. some film uh, games released that come within the same universe as a film, they can work. Really, some of them really can be well. really good. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. Um, there's some. There's a couple of Star Wars ones, the newer ones. I mm. can't remember the, the, the tagline that comes with it, but you're playing some kind of apprentice of Darth Vader who mm. ends up turning good. Oh, is that Force Unleashed? The or yeah, they're, they're, that, they're, that was good fun. They're both yeah. really good. Um, and and people rave about Knights of the Old Republic as well. I've never played it, but. People rave about that, you know, this entirely, you know, uh, massive multiplayer mm. online games, you know. So, that, uh, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. The film tie-in ones for releases are generally did you, terrible. Did you ever have the uh, Pod Racer game on the N64? No, I Phantom didn't Menace? That was, No, I didn't. Was it good? It was one of those that was quite fun to play with friends for a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. But, you know, GoldenEye was brilliant mm. on uh, the Nintendo 64. And again, on my Wii as well, I bought the, the re-release on Nintendo Wii, and that was great yeah. fun as well. But, yeah, so sometimes that's worked well. But how about the other way around then? Let, let, first off, let's just see if we can... Are there any that you've gone, actually, that was pretty good, based on a film, uh, films based on a computer game that you've gone, actually, that was pretty good? The first time I saw Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Mm-hmm. The first couple of times I saw it, actually, I was very impressed with it. I quite liked the um, the sort of concept behind it, and you know, it talks about um, Gaia, and which is the you know how Earth is like a living thing, and people got to look after it, and blah 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 blah. I thought that was quite nicely handled, and of course, you know, the technology at the time was just unlike any other animated film about it is that motion capture, and it was just in, it was just incredible. And I think it came out with a lot of hype as well. Um, although it's not, it's it's one of those films that's not like a direct adaptation of a computer game. And I think that's what disappointed a lot mm. of people. I know uh, Matt Lamborn on Twitter um, mm. and Alpha Site as well. Um, he mentioned it earlier that it was it did feel like a cash in on the success of sort of Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII that had just come out around the same time on the PlayStation and were huge. Um, successes, uh, you know, they sort of transformed RPGs for a whole generation of people. Um, mm. 
which in themselves were quite sort of cinematic at times. A lot, a lot of the FMV sequences in that were just, you know, quite long and um, you would like watching short films at times. Um, but Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, yeah, that was one that I, I liked at the time. Not quite so um, keen on anymore. Um, but I think no, it, just because of the impact it had at the time, it was quite, quite a, you know, it sort of blew me away a little bit. The list is pretty poor, isn't it? When you look at... Yeah, kind of. Um... I, I, I'll be honest. I do like the first Resident Evil. I can't. I enjoy it. In terms, yeah, it's not. It's not brilliant cinema, but it's a seven out of ten film Bo- for me. Box office hits, though. Resident Evil films. Yeah, they get made for small budgets, but regularly come back with you know Classic. box office of two hundred. Economic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The last one, Resident Evil Extinction, made for forty-five million dollars made about $148 million at the box yeah. office. So. That's why they keep getting made. They, they, yeah. they always make money. Um, but I do think the first one was quite a nice little B-movie. Um, but I'm, beyond that, I'm, I am genuinely struggling. I know that Owen's going to uh, kill anyone who says the Street <laughs> Fighters are bad. Uh, and I don't know if that's just because it's got Jean-Claude Van Damme in. Or if, or if it, Kylie's appearance has got anything to do with you, um, If you look at... There's a, there's a Wikipedia page, as there is for everything. Um, mm. It's got 1990s um, through to around 2010 of, um, of uh, film adaptations of video mm. games. Top scoring one on Final Fan, uh, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, Final Fantasy Spirits have been 44%. Then, That's the top one. Yes, with forty-four yes, percent of, of, of that period, nineteen nineties to two thousand and ten. Yeah. Uh, next up is DOA Dead or Alive. Um, oh Jesus! The, that's terrible. The original Resident Evil, the first Resident Evil. Sorry, they are yeah. both tied on thirty-four percent, and then next is oh. Mortal Kombat on thirty-three percent. They are not I well received. Mortal Kombat. That was actually. another massive box office success, though, wasn't it? Mortal Kombat. I remember that was made for a small budget and came back, you know, a huge return on that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there are some that massively flopped, aren't there? Like Super Mario Brothers, yeah. for example. Double Dragon uh, got zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Whatever uh, the hell Double Dragon is, it ain't any good. Oh, well, I that, do was, remember... that was going to be one of my. If we were going to do the triple bill, that was yeah. going to be one of my choices. Well, for this war. this one, <laughs> sixteen sixteen million dollar uh, budget made two million dollars. Which one's that? Double Dragon. Double Dragon, yeah. yeah. I've I've not seen it. I have seen now. Someone is a master of the terrible uh, video game adaptations to films, and that's um, Uwe <laughs> yes. Boll. Um, and my pick, if you can call it that, of those for him would be Alone in the Dark, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the worst pieces of cinema I've ever seen. But actually, doesn't beat my worst one, um, Silent Hill was possibly the worst film I've seen in a cinema in my entire life. <laughs> Absolutely low. And, but weirdly, um, it's not like it was cheaply made or something. It just, it was such utter gunt. Oh, God, I hated it. With I was sat there just wishing I could go to sleep. Were you a, I just wanted... were you a fan of the game, though? Did you... I really liked the game. Okay. Um, Do you think that had an influence on how you felt about the but, film? 
I don't think so. Because it, it was during a period where we used to go and watch horror films. Every yeah, Any horror film that came out, me and a group of friends went to watch it. It was one of our, our horror Wednesdays. We went with an Orange Wednesday ticket group of us. Right, right, we went to see a few like decent... We went to see The Hills Have Eyes remake at this time and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And we were like, okay, Silent Hill, okay. Oh, oh it's got Sean Bean in. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we went to watch it. And about 30 minutes in, went, I, I have no idea what's going on here. Um, oh, actually, I think I know, and it makes actually no, that makes no sense. And it just, it felt like um, someone doing a really bad David Lynch impression, basically. And David Lynch is the only person who can make David Lynch style mm. films. Anyone else comes across as a tosser, and I, I just, I've never wanted, I, I've only ever wanted to walk out of a film more than that, and that was the uh, British rugby comedy Up and Under. Um, <laughs> I went to see that instead of Titanic one night, but I still probably made the right decision. <laughs> um, but I, I just absolutely hated it, and it's really kind of put me off. That that put me off computer game adaptations for a long time anyway. But when you look at the stats, like you say, no one seems to have made a genuinely good one. That That's what's annoying. There's a few that have been passable. I think Doom is passable to an extent. Yeah, at least it's got the rock in and it's got Carl Urban. It does a decent job. I think the first Tomb Raider film is passable to an extent. It's a five, six out of ten film. It's not terrible. Um, but I'm, I'm really struggling to think of a good one. Well, yeah. maybe there will be some in the future because there's quite <sighs> a number lined up. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about one in particular. 2014, uh, Need for Speed. Is too for that will not be good. Sorry. That will not be good. <laughs> no, that, that's. Good. Let's call that one now. We've got Fast and Furious. What the yeah. hell do we need? Need for Speed. speed if you have played the games, is basically a video game of the of Fast and Furious, yeah. driving round in brightly coloured, souped up cars, doing crimes. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. all it is. There's there's very little plot. There's lots of action. Um, Assassin's Creed is due for a film. That's, that's what I'm, I was going to say. That's the one I'm kind of excited because it's got the fast in it. Mm. Fast Bender's in it, and he's producing or something as well. Um, he's expected his one, uh, career to be on a bit of a downfall, I think, <laughs> from next year onwards. It's a weird one, isn't it's it? It's so weird because he is a critically acclaimed actor. He's in Twelve Years a Slave. He's going. He's probably going to be Oscar nominated this time next February for Twelve Years a Slave. Um, he's got The Counselor with Ridley Scott coming out in November, and yet he's doing Assassin's Creed. I can only imagine he's a bit of a gamer or something. It's a, it's a weird one, but but it's, but it's got a it's got a potent just you know forgetting it all could the, work forgetting all the futury kind of weird stuff that goes on in it. You know, the going the hmm. historical part of it has got potential to be quite epic in kind is, of scale if, and and if look. someone said. Michael Fassbender is doing a film about a secret, you know, band of assassins set up against the Knights Templar. You go, oh, that sounds quite interesting. But because it's based on a computer game, you go, it's gotta be, it's gotta be shit. It's also due for a movie in 2015. Mm. um, The reception to that was pretty mixed. I think it was announced at the Mm. Comic Con and. uh, yeah, <laughs> most people apparently who like Warcraft anyway seem to be quite keen on the movie. 
as you may expect, but um, no one else. It's goes. Duncan Jones directing, though. It's Duncan, jo- and it's again, it's this really credible name. Mm. You know, Duncan Jones has made Moon and Sourcecut. He he knows his stuff, yeah. um, and he's excited about it. So part of you goes, well, if he can see something there, it must be good. And if you again, if you'd said. Duncan Jones is getting a film, he's getting a huge budget, and it's going to be fantasy epic. You go, oh, well, that's, I'll give that... Well, it's based on a computer game. No, it's going to be shit. <laughs> um, with, with, so, with a July the 1st, 2016 release date penciled in, Angry Birds is set for a, a movie. I can only shit. assume that's going to be a kid's film. Yeah, It can't be anything more than that. It'll be poor. Actually, there's a, um, there's a Lego film out next year, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. The trailer actually looked quite fun for that. I think I think the Lego film w- could well be the one because oh, that's a computer game based on an actual toy. Mm. So that's if they that's get, been if they get the tone, thing. if they get the tone, basically if they get the people who wrote the computer games in to do the film, it could work. Because yeah. the Lego Star Wars and everything like that is pretty. Yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, mm. and it, and it's better it's better than most of the kind of serious versions of those games. Mm. Um, it's got a nice sense of humour, and they've got a really good voice cast for that as well. So yeah, I think that could be um, possibly the big family film next year, which makes an impact, which would be nice. Um, Metal Gear Solid—that's the one I'm most excited about. 2016 is apparently having a movie version made of it because I think the original game lends quite well to a. a a movie. It's one yeah. of those things, though, isn't it? Where they, I mean, these things are created to be games, and mm. it's the way that I mean, Callum and um, Jackson were talking about it on that mm. feature. You know, the, the you know, as cinematic as a, a game might appear, or as you know, it's it's still essentially the story is written for a game. Yeah, and it's when that translation occurs that things sometimes just don't really work. And I know, you know, you might argue that book adaptations or comic adaptations might have the same problem. Um, but I think they still lend themselves better to being films because they're just a straight narrative. Games are mm. much more interactive and it's about your participation in it. Yeah. You get out of a game as much as you put into it. Um, with films, you're very much the audience and nothing yeah. else. So. At- and just to kind of finish off this section, that really chimes with what um, Dan Houser, the creator of Grand Theft Auto, the you know the original yeah. Grand Theft Autos, and he co you know he wrote uh, the most recent Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Auto Five. Said they've had opportunities, they've had money potentially thrown at them to make a Grand Theft Auto film, and he said it just doesn't work. Um, that's not the that's not how they tell their stories, and he said it doesn't complete. It doesn't just you know, swap over. He said it might work a little bit more with television, where you've got longer to tell your stories and things like that. But no, it's very, and it's obviously very difficult. And because we're yet to find a classic film which is based on a computer game source material, so that the the evidence and the statistics show that it's not that simple at all. Uh, very, very difficult. So, but there, there's a good few there that maybe could break the mold. Who knows? And maybe it'll be like. When all of a sudden comic book games, uh, comic book films started getting good, is because they had people who grew up on comic books. Maybe you've got people who understand computer games now making these films, and maybe that will make a difference. Yes, that, uh, that brings to an end our discussion on computer games 
and the movies and their adaptations, etc. Uh, we'll be back next with um, our um, reviews on some new releases. Now on to our main reviews, and we'll start off with Rush, the Ron Howard film starring Chris Hemsworth, uh, telling the story of the 1976 Formula One World Championship title race between James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. Here's a clip. James, do you think you can cope with the pressure? Well, I've never really understood what that means. I love my job. I love competing. I love racing. Maybe you should ask Nicky. He's the world champion. He's got everything to lose. Mr. Lauda, are you feeling pressure? Do I look like I'm feeling pressure? <laughs> I'm world champion and on the verge to become world champion again. Hunt now has the opportunity to win, but it's not so easy to become a champion. You have to really believe it to make it possible. James, is there anything you'd like to add? If Nicky is being tricky and getting a kicky out of playing mind games, <laughs> then fine, I'm flattered. But the fact is, momentum is with me. I've never felt better. And I fully expect the next press conference we all have will be with me as world champion. So that was a clip then of uh, Rush. Um, before we talk about the film, it's probably worth finding out, are we all Formula One fans? I did like the sport. I did quite enjoy it. And it all got a bit boring. It seemed to take away. The cars all became the same. And, you know it kind of got a bit identical. It was all a bit dull, and then the same person would just win all the time and become a bit uninteresting. But there was a time, a period, where I did really get into it and enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I think a, a lot of young men would have had that. I had that. Um, uh, yeah, it's a sport I don't watch anymore, but it was something I shared with my dad because it was the one sport he liked. Uh, when I was growing up, so I'd watch it with him, and I think I, I do remember seeing Nelson Piquet, uh, Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost, Nigel Mansell, people like that. I think Damon Hill was the last driver I had any kind of vested interest in. But um, it's a cinematic sport, though, definitely. Uh, you know, looking at Senna, uh, like a few years back, I, I love seeing F1 portrayed on screen, even if I don't actually particularly bothered to watch the the real stuff yeah i mean um i'm in a similar position to you as well actually i didn't i uh, it was one of those things that my dad liked and he would watch it mm. all the time but i never had an interest of my own in it i mean i never followed any races and it, it was just one of those things that my dad liked and i didn't you know when you're a kid you don't like the things your mm. parents do because you're being rebellious <laughs> and stuff but um i always found it a bit boring even, you know, when you had people like Schumacher and Damon Hill, and I just thought, mm, it's just too predictable. My um, sister-in-law used to watch it, actually, and she used to mm. watch it because she found the predictability of it comforting. So, I mean, that's just because <laughs> she just used to like the fact that it was always the same people winning the races all the time. That's why she watched it. But whereas me, I'd find that kind of thing just insanely yeah. dull. And... Um, but you know, I, I I never really knew about the history of the sport. So the story, I obviously knew Nicky Lauda was a, a you know famed racer and he had a rivalry with James Hunt, but I didn't know any of the details of it. So coming into this film, um, well, I was going to say coming into this film, I was quite fresh to it and it was quite interesting. But the trailer to this mm -hmm. film, before we start talking about the film, can I just have a rant about the trailer? 
go for it. Because that just that was just a storyboard of the whole film from beginning to end. And I know yeah. it's a you know based on a true story and quite an old story, and there are lots of people who already know all the details to it. I don't know all the details to it um, until I'd watched that trailer, and it was on every time I was going to the cinema for about I don't know about a month, month and a half beforehand. Mm. Um, really poor spoiler-ridden piece of trash that trailer was. I hated it. Uh, just ruined the film in many respects. But that said, I I mean, I don't know what you two thought of it, but I thought the film was actually quite good. I came out of it with, um, you know, I, was, I came out of it thinking, well, they've actually managed to make Formula One seem exciting. So, you know, give them the juice. It's something I never thought I would, I would think about Formula One. I, I actually really enjoyed it, and it seemed like um, what well, it seemed like the film. Actually, it was exactly the film I expected. Uh, you know, uh, it's Ron Howard. It's got the Hollywood glitz and the sheen. Great performances. It's written by the same guy who wrote Frost Nixon, which Ron Howard also mm. directed, which I watched this week for the first time um, to kind of give me a bit more of an insight into. Uh, Rush and, and I really enjoyed that and I think this is something that Ron Howard does very well actually he he has a real sense of place he has a sense of history and some of my favourite films of his are films which are him just bringing to life a bit of history that I hadn't really known about and it, it in a way, he's acting almost some kind of like history teacher for me. Because uh, I really enjoyed Apollo 13. Again, it happened before I was born. Frost Nixon, again, it evoking a time, evoking some people and some characters um, that I knew about, but bringing those characters to life. James Hunt I knew about. Mm. I, I knew about this playboy um, race car driver, and I did see little bits of him when he used to present on on BBC One uh, in the Grand Prix. But this film brought that whole era. It didn't just bring James Hunt's life. It brought the era of the 70s, the amateur racers, the kind of almost the gentleman racers mm. who decided to just spend some money so they could race cars in exotic locations and but bed lots of women. It must be difficult for a filmmaker to tell a story where everyone already knows the ending. I'll be honest, I didn't know the ending. No, I didn't yeah. know exactly lot, the ending. A lot of people do, and a lot of people could have looked yeah. it up. A lot of people could have... Oh, yeah. When, well, as soon as they heard Rush was being made, they could have gone, mm. all right, I'm just going to watch old race footage and, and read up. And appara- or, or, apparently there's a very good BBC documentary of the Hunt-Nicky oh. Lauder rivalry, which is possibly still on iPlayer, but I've not had a chance to watch. People, but, people no, you're right. You know, people could have gone... Well, Apollo thirteen, they they get back all right. So yeah. watching the film, I know there's no in a, in a way for a lot of people, there's no suspense watching the film because yeah. they know the outcome. Even though I think this did a job, a good job of building up suspense in the last, yeah, in the last but like race. You say, it's very easy to know what happens, even if yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. And so I think for me, Ron Howard's skill is but is getting good performances out of his actors and just building up this sense that you're there that you are in that time really good production design the the cars looked and importantly sounded fantastic this is a film that sounds mm. really good it looked really uh, good it, as well though the, the, it did the, you know but then 
any time that era is put onto film or TV, you know, like um, Life on Mars, it tends to look pretty cool. And yeah, and Argo last year, you know, yeah. um, uh, again, a true story. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really, this is a film that I, I would urge people who are thinking, I'll wait for it on DVD. No, if, if you think you might like it, go and watch it in the cinema because you'll be far more impressed. I think it will have less impact at home simply because some of the scenes looked fantastic. But for me, the sound of it, uh, and I, I hope it gets nominated in a lot of technical awards for, for sound design because it just sounded an incredible film. Uh, I, I love that. I felt I felt really on the edge of my seat at times. And the other skill was it actually brought you into a world which is very difficult to understand mm. from the from you know watching it on TV. But there were one or two scenes where you are at, you're literally looking through a visor in a car doing 150 miles, and you think, "Shit, that that looks terrifying." How how the hell did they? And oh, and it, there was there's a couple of scenes like that where it just made me go. Christ, that's that's in you know I've got such I'm such in I'm so in awe of the people doing this because you don't really think about how little visibility they might have in that tiny little cockpit, that tiny little visor, and it's chucking down rain and shit at it, and you think, wow, yeah, no, they, it helps you realise that all of the quite poetic and the quite stagey language. That sometimes the character, because it's not the most naturalistic of dialogue. It's a lot of kind of Greek monologues and stuff like yeah. that from the uh, uh, from the two protagonists, um, you know, and talking about how every time I get in the car, I know there's a twenty percent chance I'm going to die and stuff like that. What kind of people would do that? And you think, yeah, this is just bravado. And then when you look at actually what they had to do, you think that that they did really risk their lives every time they got in one of those cars, and that's quite incredible. Yeah. I mean, just coming to that point you mentioned about the dialogue, I mean, mm. there weren't very many criticisms I had of the film. Um, no. And in fact, even the dialogue, it wasn't until I sort of properly sat down and thought about it afterwards that it was a bit cringeworthy at times. Yeah. You know, they had a lot of, um, particularly towards the end of the film, where there's just a back-and-forth dialogue between... Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brawl, um, which is just one Confucius parable to the next Confucius parable, and then just back and forth with that for for about five minutes. And you, at the time, I was really caught up in it. I thought, oh, this is really cool, actually. What they're saying to it is quite cool. Yeah. And then you sort of think about it, and actually, mm, that was just a bit silly, actually. And I think that's the that's because of the background of the writer peter morgan yeah. who started in theater and apparently this film when he when he devised it and when he started writing it it was i don't know if you told me this Owen, or if i read it somewhere um because i don't i want to give credit to whoever told me this but apparently it was meant to, it wasn't meant to feature any racing in it was going to be quite a low budget british film and it, it was going to be about the two men and the action was going to be in whenever they spoke to each other yeah. and it was when Ron Howard got on board and you know they started raising the money for it that they were able to turn it into this big motor racing film but its genesis uh, was in potentially bringing it a stage play to life mm. uh, so that is where I think a lot of that dialogue comes from is the fact that it was originally going to be about 
two men talking to each other rather than racing each other. Then I, yeah. I think you need to get across that the two the two main characters are completely different in their in their personalities, but in the way they approach the sport. I mean, you've got Hunt, who is one of them sportsmen where it appears to come naturally to them, kind of like George Best. They don't have to try; they can just rock up and do it, and they're brilliant, and then go mm. home. But they're but they're you know a bit of a maverick and a bit of a playboy and a bit of the kind of person everyone wants to be. And then there's then there's someone like Lauda who has to work incredibly hard. It may be it's maybe not natural to them, so they have to work incredibly hard at everything. And they have to spend yeah. so much time practicing and getting everything right and getting everything down to the millimeter. And even then sometimes they can't win. Like against mm. somebody who they think just turns up on a day and does it and they think he's not even trying and he's bloody better than me. And I think you know, you've got to have a lot of dialogue to kind of otherwise you could just see it as two drivers who are just two, you know, not that different. It could just be two guys going into cars and driving. Oh yeah, the whole I think the whole the heart of the film is about the two different men. Uh, but to me, it's quite interesting because I was thinking if this wasn't based on a true story, if this wasn't based on true personalities, this might be a very cliched film. Yeah, it would, it would <laughs> be because it is. That's it, the it, thing you think. <laughs> if it wasn't true, you'd yeah. think it was ridiculous. Um, and I think someone else described it as a live-action version of Cars, Pixar's <laughs> Cars, essentially. Yeah. And uh, and that's true. It's because the two characters are... It's exactly that odd couple. Um, even down to, you know, comedy. Uh, the original film, The Odd Couple, was about a very fastidious, you know, very, you know, very person, by-the-book person uh, who didn't get on with someone who just was very spontaneous, lived life uh, as and when it came kind of thing. It, it's almost the oldest cinematic um dynamic between two characters uh that ever that's ever been uh and it was only because you i think because it's grounded in a historical context it gave it a bit more credibility and believability and you could let some of that go i'm quite disappointed of not being able to find many articles to read on the making of this film how it was actually you know how how much it actually involved um nicky loud a bit you know various different drivers from the time to get a real feel of what the rivalry was like, what the well, racing was like. I've just not been able to find much out about it, which is quite disappointing. Isn't it sort of adapted slightly from his own autobiography? I, I, that's my understanding as well. Um, Peter Morgan met Nicky Lauder on I think 16 occasions in the end. Yeah. Um, so Peter Morgan is he has based it on Nicky Lauder's memories, essentially. Yeah, which um, is what I was quite shocked by. I thought the film mm. was going to be mainly sort of James Hunt's point of view. Um, yeah. Seeing as he's almost built up as, um, not the hero, but you know the the downtrodden guy who does good. Yeah. But it's actually he's the underdog, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, but the um, it's 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 told almost from the perspective of Nicky Lauder, and it's his it's sort of like his memories. Of his rivalry with James how, Hunt, which was how well yeah. how well has this been? Um, not so much received. It's getting excellent reviews everywhere, but in America, how's it how's it gone down? How you know people going to watch it? Because Formula One is one of them sports that in America they don't seem to get. Well, they don't. Um, they don't. Seem although to go they for. did at the time, because. Uh, there, there was a Grand Prix in America at the time, and in fact, in the film, one of the Grand Prix takes place mm. in America. Um, I'm not sure of its box office, but it's doing decent box office. I know that it's not 
smashing records. But it, again, but the reviews it's one of those been, films that looks. The, the reviews haven't oh, been universal though. Not even in no, the UK, you know. No. Um, they've been they've been of a kind of of a positive bent, uh, but there have been even the positive ones have said there's this issue with it. There's potentially this hmm. issue with it. Um, but I, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure how well it's done in America. I do think it might sneak into a few uh, potential award setups. I think it might do. Um, I hope Daniel Brühl, who plays Nicky Lauder, I hope he gets a nod in some of the big uh, acting categories. A, because I'm a big fan of his anyway. Really like his work from um, Goodbye Lenin, uh, Inglorious Bastards, and. Uh, the Educators, I think it's called, a German film as well. So I really like him, and he he is brilliant. I think Chris Hem- Hemsworth does a great job, um, uh, and he gets to keep his Thor accent, basically, <laughs> um, playing James Hunt. And, he does, he, I, and he's very charismatic, and I like him a lot, but it's quite... I can't, even remember, easier... I can't even remember what he's meant to sound like, like his actual voice. I, I do remember him being quite a posh bloke. Um, in real life, I, and I think Hemsworth gets that spirit, but it's it's quite an easy one because he's such a likable cat. It's easy to be that likable on screen, whereas Nicky, La- uh, yeah, Daniel Brühl has got a much tougher job of an un, yeah, a character that not many people in the film like, and even the audience don't really like him. Uh, and in a way, like James Hunt, they come to respect him more than anything else. And that's far more difficult as an actor to be able to do that, and I think he does it brilliantly. Okay. Um, now, then, a review of Insidious 2, a sequel to the horror film Insidious. Here's a clip. Come on, let's get out of here. Okay, that was a clip then of Insidious 2. Uh, Owen's the only one who's seen this, so Owen, yeah, tell I'll, us about this. I'll talk about it, yeah. It's um, the sequel from uh, James Wan, who is... Um, he did The Conjuring earlier this year, which we all really liked. All of us who saw it on the podcast all thought it was um, really good. And um, this is basically his more silly <laughs> sort of horror film, if you like. There's more humour in it, I think. Um, did either of you two see the first film, Insidious? Yeah. No, I've still not seen you've it. still not seen it, but you've seen it, Steve. What, did you like all of it, or did you like a bit of it, or did you not I, like any of it? I thought it was kind of... It didn't really do much for me. No? See, I no. quite liked the first half of the first film. Um, I thought the first half of the first film is where it starts to take itself quite seriously. And you can tell that um, Oren Pelly, the producer, has got a lot of influence over um, the style of it. Because James Wan's more known, I think, for the Saw films, which are very um, claustrophobic and, um, you know, all about the situation. Whereas uh, Insidious is just a haunted house film, really. The second half of the first film... So it's it's very difficult to talk about Insidious (laughs) 2... If you've not seen the first film, because it is, it is a direct sequel, carries on the plot from exactly where the last one left off. Um, but the second half of the first film 
it for me just went a bit too silly. It went a bit too over the top and it went all very trippy and dreamlike and it was just a bit of a shock compared to how the setup had been in that first half of the film. In the second half, uh, sorry, in the in chapter two, Insidious chapter two, it kind of embraced that more humorous side to it and it's not taking itself quite so seriously anymore. Um, you've got two characters in it who um, try and video all the activity that's going on. They want to sort of film all this, this the, the weird things that are happening to the Lambert family, who um, in the first film, it's their son who you find out is being haunted by a ghost or a demon or a spirit from another world. Um, and in the second film, it's it, so again, I can't really say what it is, but it's the hauntings are still happening. I'll put that probably about as um, spoiler free <laughs> as I'm going to get. The, 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 the hauntings are still happening to the family. Um, the family, by the way, are uh, Patrick Wilson, who I've spoken about quite a few times on here, I think, because I, I quite like him. I think he's a really good uh, actor. And he just suits these films down to a grain. He was brilliant in The Conjuring. I thought he was great mm, in The Conjuring. Yeah. He was very, very good in the first Insidious film as well. And again, here, he has to play a, quite a, a mix of different um, uh, sort of emotions and styles. And it, it, it does it all very well. He's very good at being quite angry, very good at being quite timid. And he mixes it up very, very nicely. Um but yeah, it, it's a very strange film in that it's it's much more uh, humorous. There's a lot more humour in it. It knows exactly what kind of film it's trying to be. Um, and for that reason, I think I enjoyed it more overall than Insidious. Um, partly because it's got a solid script. The, the script is very consistent. And because it's got such this, um, the consistency to it all, you don't feel like it's a film of two halves. You don't feel like that they've gone halfway through the film. Uh, oh, this is way too dry and way too serious. We're going to have to check, you know, mix it up a bit. It's it's all on a level, which is good. I think as well, what it does differently to the original film, the first half of the first film, the bit I liked, which I've talked about, has the Oren Pelly feel to it. Oren Pelly is the guy who's most famous for paranormal activity films. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much about what you can't see. So there's things that you uh, things that are implied. There's you know was that something in the mirror? Lots of shadows about. So is that something that you can see in the corner, or is it literally just like a something hanging off a hook? Um, and it turns out most of the time, <laughs> no, it's nothing. It's just just you, you know, trying to copy how your mind plays tricks on you. In this yeah. film, it's much more upfront about if there's something there, it's meant to be there. If there's if it's just them trying to make it so your mind plays tricks on you, you get that straight away. There's none of this sort of tedious, um, lots of scenes with absolutely nothing happening. <laughs> um, so that's quite good. I think that's quite a bold move. It, I suppose in many ways it could come across as quite cliched. Um, you know, you might think that something being pushed, you know, they've got a little, um, you know, the baby walker things, you know, they're just being pushed across the floor. It, it, Okay, it is more cliched in that sense. It's not as uh, trying to make. It's not as jumpy. It's not trying to make you jump in that sense. What it does is it, it properly goes for it. So when you've got things like there's a face of an old woman screaming in, <laughs> screaming straight down the camera, who's this ghostly figure, and you think 
okay, they, they just they've gone balls out to just make this as freaky and as <laughs> disturbing as they can, and it's brilliant because um, it's just so different to to what what you'd expect from this kind of film. I think James Wan as well. He's much more accomplished as a director in this film. Lots of themes through, about uh, that run through Insidious too are all about um, doors and gateways and things into different you know, dimensions. So that's mimicked quite a lot with almost every scene beginning with the camera either sort of swooping through very small archways or a lot of the times you are just following the camera straight through a doorway as it goes up to, to the characters to speak and so on. That's quite clever. I think it, it's very subtle, but you do it's not subtle so you don't notice it. It's subtle there so... You, you kind of pick up that, oh, okay, so he's trying to, this is implied that, um, you know, things are on a different plane, different astral plane and so on. And it, it's, it's, it's quite good. I like, I liked how, um, how he did that. So, yeah, I mean, without trying to go around in circles any more than I already have, it's quite a, quite a good horror film. If you like the first film, um, you'll probably like the second film, if you've not seen the first film, don't see the second film because it just won't make any sense to you. You've, you've got you've really got to watch the first to understand what the story is about in the second. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I quite liked it. I, it was it was much better than I was expecting it to be. Okay, and finally, then is a review of not a film but a game, Grand Theft Auto Five, which ties in with all the video game stuff we've been doing. It has been released uh, on Tuesday today, the day of recording. Me and James have been playing it, um, probably too excessively, something so to come out. <laughs> yeah. Um, have we got a clip? Uh, do you know what? Yeah, maybe. I've no idea. Let's edit it okay. if we have. <laughs> if not, let's not. <laughs> Here's possibly a clip. What do you want, Michael? I don't know. I want something that isn't this. Dad! Jimmy, I want to be a good dad. Love my family. Live the dream. Why do I have to hold your hand through this whole midlife crisis bullshit? Come Same time, I really want the other stuff too. And you're plainly addicted to chaos. Well, I'm not sure that's true, Doc. I'm rich, I'm miserable. I'm pretty average for this town. I think you need a new therapist. So Grand Theft Auto 5, then a game uh, in the Grand Theft Auto series, but seems to be on a, a larger scale um, plot-wise than ever before. Yeah, um, what I really liked about it, actually, uh, just the opening to the game uh, is how this game should open. It really, uh, we've had that talk about 
you know, can games be cinematic? And at times, Grand Theft Auto is one of those that just about gets away with it, makes you feel like you are part of a film. Uh, opens with a heist, very Michael Mann-esque, um, and we're introduced to... And what's different about this game compared to other Grand Theft Autos is there are three playable characters now. Uh, they are all kind of interlinked. Or including a dog. Oh, yeah, there's a dog in it as well, yeah. Um, and you can swap between the characters. You can swap between them when you're just chilling out, but you can also swap between them during heists to make it that little bit more interactive. Mm. Really. Sometimes but for you me, have to swap between them to progress the, the game. Exactly, yeah. Um, everything else about the game is as you would imagine, but just bigger, and it looks better. The map itself is apparently bigger than... Um, San Andreas, Grand Theft Auto 4, and Red Dead Redemption, which was the kind of link game between uh, Grand Theft Auto 4 and, and this. So, huge, huge game. Looks brilliant. Um, and it's so it's so nice to be back in this huge area. As compared to Grand Theft Auto 4, which was in quite a dark city, you know, you've got the city side of this, but you've also got the, the countryside, the mountains, cougars who come and eat you if you're not armed properly. And, you know, I've already, I've already come across a cougar. Apparently there are sharks in this as well. Hmm. Um, uh, but for me, the great thing about um, Grand Theft Auto that I love doing, uh, and Steve's, Steve disagrees with me, I'm such a middle-aged man. It was, the, the, I was looking to see if there was a way I could indicate while I was driving. I was thinking, well, why, why, why have we not got indicators yet? I need to tell everyone I'm turning left and stuff like that. I'm such a middle-aged player of this. Uh, one of the first things I did when I got hold of this game is once I unlocked the middle-aged um, man in it, because there's a middle-aged character who's in witness protection, um, I went to the cinema with him, obviously. <laughs> I went to see a 60s art house film, um, which is a really weird surrealist film sat there watching it for 10 minutes just sat there in the cinema watching a fake film and, and, and its production values are brilliant then i went to a strip club and sat there for about 15 minutes throwing dollar bills at a woman and then i went for a round of golf it's, it's, it's my life i'm essentially <laughs> living i don't have to go outside anymore it's great um but the actual kind of more exciting stuff the driving and the shooting all of those mechanics are a lot better than they were in the previous version of the game. And importantly for me, it's got that sense of fun back. It's made me laugh out loud on a number of occasions already. There's some really nice interplay between some characters. The radio stations are as brilliant as ever. There's some fantastic talk radio on there. Um, and and I've, I've been playing it for about three or four hours today, and already I'm missing it. I can't believe I've come to do a fucking podcast. I want to go back to playing it. Um, it it's, it's genuinely really enjoyable, and I can see my film take my film watching taking a bit of a hit. Steve, what what have your thoughts been? Um, as brilliant as you kind of expect, you always expect a Grand Theft Auto film to look great, and uh, sorry, game to look great, sound great. It does look great and sound great. So the story, the plot, the characters have to be better. The last one, Grand Theft Auto 4, uh, the downloadable content aside, was poor. The, the main, obviously the Liberty City, which is meant to be New York, looked looked amazing. Um, but the character you played 
was boring. He was kind of it wasn't really exciting. He didn't. He was he was an immigrant to America trying to make it, to make his way good, and he it just didn't really. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't kind of as over the top or, you know, mm. he was a bit of a dull character to play. Um, but now they seem to have come back and gone. Well, there's three here, so you got to like one of them at least. Yeah, and and that's part of the genius of this game, I think, is that there there is genuinely a character for everyone. I, I saw that someone earlier today said it's quite interesting that um, the Franklin, the the young African American who's trying to escape from the hood, uh, he is the story that he's basically the figure that we uh, we associate. With Grand, that that kind of character we associate with Grand Theft Auto. Then there's Michael, the middle-aged, retired in witness protection bank robber, which is the kind of mature story that uh, that Rockstar wants to tell, the mature gangster cinematic story that they want to tell. And then there's Trevor, who I've not had the pleasure of meeting yet because um, I've been dicking around in cinemas and on golf courses and stuff, but who is a genuine psychopath and is basically how most people tend to play the game after a little while which is just go on killing sprees and kill people for the fun of it um so you've got three very different characters and already i've been playing my characters befitting their character so franklin i've been going around doing a lot of driving doing a lot of jobs trying to make my way um with michael i've been taking a drive to the beach because you know that's what my middle-aged guy going through a midlife crisis might do just go take a drive to the beach and hang out there for the day so i i really like these this multi-character setup for it um and yeah i I just i've just got the fun of playing it back again and it's brilliant i've not had this much fun since gta san andreas and that was a game i spent a lot of time do you think they've taken influence from a lot of popular modern TV programs for the characters. I mean, Franklin feels like something out of the wire and, and mm-hmm. Michael definitely has a Tony Soprano kind of yeah, thing to him. Yeah, he's even visiting a shrink and he's got, yeah. a, he's got a son who's a bit of a waste of space and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, yeah, it's taken a lot of influence from TV, I think. But uh, what I do like is Rockstar's prism that it reflects society through. So there is, there's a computer game in there which is clearly taking the piss out of the Call of Duty series and you know the way they deal with that. The, the TV I can just sit down and watch for ages. There's a Pop Idol style programme. Um, Fame and Shame, I think it's called. I sat and watched that for ten minutes earlier. There's a, a cartoon... Um, about impotent liberals called Impotent Rage, a superhero who's this liberal, <laughs> uh, hypo- hypocritical liberal who gets really angry about things but drives a gas-guzzling motor car and stuff like that. Um, and, and I do think it, it does have this really nice... It, it just holds a mirror up to modern-day America and has some fun with it. And that's the most... It does have a lot of fun with it. It's It's funny, it's a bit ridiculous but grounded in a kind of reality and yeah I, I i've no idea how long it'll take for me to get bored of it but at this moment i'm thinking i might not be- bother getting a ps4 straight away because i'm quite happy with this i can't uh, believe the amount of press that it's been getting from mm. just the, the strangest of places i was listening to pm 
on uh, Radio 4, and they're talking about Grand Theft Auto 5, interviewing people yeah. from IGN and stuff, and I just think, yeah, what's, what's am I in a, an alternative universe where... It's really weird, isn't it? It's, it's, basically, I think there's only ever been one film made that's been more expensive than this game. Um, 170 million, I think they said. 70 million, yeah. There's well, there's very few films that have been made with a bigger budget yeah. than this film, um, and it's probably going to make as much as Avengers did mm. in its first year. Yeah, it's it's a huge, bigger, huge bigger export than James Bond, apparently. Yeah, yeah. and and like, yeah, that's right. This all comes from a a computer games company that started in Scotland, mm. which is fantastic yeah. yeah it's really positive for the british economy um but i can just see by the end of the week we'll have the won't someone think of the children's style moral panic articles coming mm. out and uh yeah we're just gonna have to deal with it. it happens every time but those of you who who like games i think you i genuinely don't know why you won't enjoy this it's it is the most polished version of rockstar's vision to date uh, and i think it is it, it it's a really nice kind of finishing stamp on on this current generation of consoles goes there you go nothing's going to top this now in, in this generation let's move on to the next ones okay well, um brings to an end our new new release uh, reviews what what new releases next week are we looking at Okay, uh, three, and I'll, I'm just going to say right now, I'm I'm not confident. <laughs> Next week is going to be a tough one. Um, we've got The Call, which is the new Halle Berry film, which has one of the worst trailers I've ever seen. The new WWE Halle Berry film. Yeah, that's it. It's made by uh, Worldwide Entertainment. Made, World made, by, Entertainment. made by Vince McMahon and... and um... Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, so we've got that. We've got um, R.I.P.D., uh, which is basically Men in Black with Ghosts. Um, yeah, it's not got good reviews. And then finally, uh, and I think as kind of editor of the site, I've got to put my hand up. I've got to man up and go and see Diana. The legend isn't the true story. Oh, Christ. <laughs> Horrendous. I've just seen a trailer. Uh, uh, I've seen a trailer, and there's, there's no dialogue in the trailer. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping it's a silent film. Uh, Doubt it will be. Yeah. I'll tell you what. A, a nice eighty-minute silent film would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'd take that. I'll tell you what would have made this film better. Yeah. If Muhammad Al Fayed had funded it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we, if we'd had a genuine, if he no, if he'd written it, that would, that would <laughs> make it even better. Um, yeah, I've got a feeling we're not going to get really into the truth of what happened in that well, in Paris that night. It's just going to be boring and look how amazing she was. Isn't she brilliant? He's not going to look at any kind of the, the scandals and anything like that. It'll just be, look how brilliant she was, then look how the press killed her. Well, yeah, well, we'll see. But I, I imagine I'll be the only one seeing <laughs> So... That's next week, you'll, anyway. You'll be in a cinema full of really old people watching it, I guarantee it. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm a professional, though. The things I do for you people. We appreciate so, yeah, you taking one on the show for us, yeah. Yeah. Well, 
one of you bastards better watch RIPD, <laughs> and one of you bastards better watch The Call, uh, which is available on Brazilian Netflix for anyone who but I'd say <laughs> is we interested in watching it. Yeah. Or White House Down. We haven't reviewed White House Down yet. No, yeah, White House Down, that was a new release this week, and all I would say to that is just refer to my um, review for Olympus Has Fallen. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that'll, that'll do the job. Just change the actor's it, name where appropriate. It's a bit longer. Um, and it's Roland Emmerich, so it's going to be ludicrous. But yeah, just change the act. It just, I'm sure it's pretty much the same. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to see it either, but I'll be able to give a, a review of Prisoners. I'm going to see a preview of Prisoners with Hugh Jackman okay. and Jake Gyllenhaal. So, oh yeah, I, I'm, that looks interesting. Yeah, yeah. certainly yeah. looks better than Diana. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, up next we've got what we're recommending for next week. Recommendations then for the week coming up. On TV on Friday there is a lot worth watching. Some may clash, so you may have to get your uh, record function out on whichever recordable device you are watching on. Uh, 5 to 8, uh, 25 to 8 on BBC Three, Shrek is on. Uh, always worth watching. One of the best kind of kids' films that's also for adults as well. Uh, 9 o'clock, more for Hurt Lock, The Hurt Locker is on. Uh, 9 o'clock on ITV2, Paranormal Activity is on. Uh, and, uh, 11 o'clock ITV4 Green Mile is on so lots to watch on Friday on the television there's also Epic Movie but don't watch that because it's terrible I haven't even watched you've I, actually seen no, it no I haven't oh. I haven't. I just know it is ok I, yeah. it's what, it's, it, I can just tell you now it is Titanic is that the one with Sean Maguire in it I don't know these people I believe Sean McGuire, uh, that is like a it's a piss take out of three hundred or something. But yeah, uh, Titanic's also on um, at nine o'clock on Film Four. It's on for four hours. I will tell you now, the boat sinks. Excellent. There you go. Spoiler yes. alert. Um, James, what are you recommending for us? Okay, yeah, my recommendation. I'll go cheat. I, that film that I told you about, right at the top of the podcast, uh, in the mood for love. Well, that's actually on Mubi. UK M U B I. Um, I mentioned that quite a little while ago when we did a bit of a review of streaming services, and so I thought I'd just replug that again because it fits in quite nicely. You get, a, I think, you get a minimum of two weeks free trial to Mubi. It might even be a month if you sign in via Facebook. Have a look on there because In the Mood for Love is one of their films that is going to be available for the next 30 days. Uh, the way movie works is each day it puts on a new film that takes off a film. So films get about 30 days uh, on the site. Uh, it's like having a really knowledgeable uh, friend kind of suggest films to you. So it's, it's a nice little service. It's, like and it's only two ninety nine a month. Recommend What's that? It's like having us recommend films for you. Yeah, it's like having knowledgeable versions of us recommend films, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really nice service, two ninety nine a month, and you get to see some re- some films which are actually quite difficult to see uh, in other areas. They're not, you know, a lot of them aren't generally on Netflix. There's a lot of world cinema there, a lot of documentaries. It's really nice. So in the mood for love is on movie. Gives you a chance to watch it for nothing. And um, Owen, what about you? 
Have we managed to lose Owen? Yeah, I'm just back now. Oh, sorry. Did, oh, God. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll edit that. Just give me um, 10 seconds of silence so that when I'm editing it, I go, what's that silence? And I investigate this bit. James, go and investigate this bit. Thank you. That'll do. Um, so, yeah, he just said to you, Owen, so go go with your recommendation. Just straight up. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to recommend a film um, that's on TV. Uh, we've talked about it before. I think I talked about it with Jerry and James has also mentioned it. And I think Steve said it's one of those films he's got no interest in seeing. Um, <laughs> but I'm picking Citizen Kane. Um, it's on, uh, I think I'll put Film 4 on the website, but it's, I think it's actually on BBC 4. Um, I need to edit that. <laughs> on Sunday, okay. on the 22nd of September at uh, 9pm. It's uh, absolutely a classic film, one I only saw recently, and um, obviously it's well known for being Orson Welles' directorial debut that made him into this international superstar director, um, and quite rightly, it's it's really good. Very important film, yeah, um, but also just, just a fantastic story, and just incredible. So that's my pick, Citizen Kane. I will, I'm actually going to watch that now, and then you can all have my review on the, the most important film of all time. Yeah, don't tease us, Steve. You, if you watch it, you've got to watch it. If you say you're going to do it. My my only knowledge of it is is The Simpsons going to <laughs> This the Kane from Citizen Kane. Like 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 a lot of classics films, Steve's reference point is The Simpsons parody. Of it. <laughs> They actually had the um, rear window parody of The Simpsons on um, the other day. While you were still laid up? Yes. Oh, that's nice. And I also, I also didn't watch Rush at the intended time because, more irony for me, my car failed its MOT, so I can to the cinema. <laughs> Brilliant. So, yes, just ruined by irony, my cinema watching it. <laughs> I, I'm concerned that you're watching The Call next week in that case because... That means you could be dealing with a serial killer. That's, that's a worry, oh, Steve. Um, at, at the moment, while this irony thing works, I've stopped watching scary films in case. Yeah, it's sensible. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want anything happening. Anyway, that's all for this week. Uh, thanks to everyone who listening. Thanks for the guys from the Pupcast uh, for joining us as well. Uh, you can find the website www.failedcritics.com and we're on Twitter as well at failedcritics. Um, and we'll see you next week. The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, with original music provided by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics, and on Twitter at at failedcritics.